0: everyone, and welcome to Director's Club. I am your host, Jim Lazkowski. And, uh, well, the the weather is starting to cool down. The windows are open. My favorite season is upon us. Uh, And, of course, next month, being October of 2020, uh, it's all going to be about horror. But for September, I thought it would be great to talk about a director that is horror-adjacent, at least a couple of his films, in particular, have uh, gone on to be qu- uh, quite renowned. And I certainly could not go it alone because then I would just be monologuing like Eric Bogosian in talk radio. With me today is one incredibly intelligent, articulate podcaster. Uh, please welcome the
1: host of supporting characters, returning champion. <laughs> Bill Ackerman. Oh, thank you for having me back. This is my, is this my first episode with directors club since uh, you retook, uh, took over the reins again from. Uh... I believe so. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. This is, this is going to be a tough one. Um, this is a very different filmmaker than uh, all the other ones we've discussed over the years. So uh, hopefully yeah, we can do I, some justice. I, <laughs> I watched nothing but Larry Clark
0: movies for this episode. So uh, oh. <laughs> I have to spend the next two hours taking a shower. Yeah. And, uh, praying for redemption. So well, hopefully, no uh, one, you, hopefully no one's peeping on you with that shower, but,
2: uh, <laughs> no, hopefully
0: not. Hopefully not. Well, I'm glad you returned Yeah, and, uh, looking forward to, uh, you doing so in the future, maybe with Patrick, maybe not, but we'll, <laughs> you know, hope for the best. We, I hope that we survive I hope so <laughs> <laughs> for 2021. Cause, uh, I, I definitely want to keep this going at, at least for another year, if not longer, but, uh, in all seriousness, folks, uh, this is not the Larry Clark episode. It is all about Mr. Robert Clark, AKA Bob Clark. Uh, and he's, he's a name that I've known since I was a kid. I mean, obviously I didn't you know, know about his career, but it, it, just due to the fact that I would see his name in the credits for, you know, uh, a, a, a yearly staple in our family watching a Christmas story. And, uh, we're covering two very different works from Bob today, uh, 1974's Death Dream, as well as the groundbreaking successful sex comedy Porky's. So I don't know which film is scarier, but <laughs>
1: we'll we'll have some great discussions, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, the obvious, you know... Uh, Popular choice with him is A Christmas Story, which we'll also be talking about. But um, I thought you know maybe that you know Porky's might be I don't know what we'll what we'll make of it, but I thought that might be an interesting thing to discuss. And I know that uh, Death Dream was kind of what prompted this episode, so we're definitely going to go deep into that one.
0: Yes, I highly recommend the Blue Underground Blu Ray. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that's a really great release, and I hope people will you know, uh, m- make it a priority for, you know, the, for their October viewing. I, you know, if you haven't seen it yet, I, th- I think it's right up there with, uh, Black Christmas. So we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to both of those one more than the other. Uh, but before we proceed, Bill, how have you been doing? During quarantine, are you getting cabin
1: fever? Are you holding up okay? How are things? Um, yeah, no, I'm. I I've I I've uh, been keeping myself busy with podcasts and and uh, Blu-ray work and and all that good stuff. So I, I uh, I'm a little stir crazy. Um, and but you know, uh, still still going for uh, my morning runs, you know, every day, and uh, still keep in touch with uh, with friends through the internet and occasionally uh, social distanced. Uh, you know, socializing, but, um, yeah, hanging in there. Okay. I can't really complain I'm feeling very lucky to have, uh, retained my job through all of this, uh, craziness.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. That's, that's a blessing for sure. Cause a lot of people are struggling with that, but you know, I, 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 I like I was telling people before, you know, the, the idea of lockdown didn't entirely scare me because, you know, I, I, sp- I spent a lot of my time alone and I've gotten used to it and it's been okay. But, uh, it's also one of those things you don't know what you have until it's gone to where every now and again, you know, I think back to last year for my birthday and the fact that I actually had a little party with 10 people over, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of want, I want that again. I want to be able to do that again. I want to be able to hang out with a group of people or go to the movies and sit next to friends or whatever. Uh, but I don't think that will be happening this year. I mean, I'll talk briefly about my experience of seeing uh, tenant in a in a movie theater. but again, you know the, i don't I can't remember how many seats they normally have at the music box, but you know they did a tremendous job of of spacing people out and only allowing fifty
1: people in total. yeah, I, I mean, I just bought my uh, tickets for the New York Film Festival. And this will be the first time I'm going uh, in my kitchen to uh to the movies this year. so it it's 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 odd. i I, I, I miss so much <laughs> of public life, but that's, you know, going to the movies is definitely a uh, part of it. I, I just haven't even felt um, really tempted by what's even the, I mean, there's drive-ins uh, near here, but I just have not had time to, uh, to even make it up for that just because I, I've made myself so busy with the podcast uh, stuff again. But even with that, I, I miss being able to interview people in person, um, you know, because, you know, it, it's, it's hard to develop that rapport with someone you don't really know over the phone or over Skype. Um, it's a lot easier to, you know, interview people face to face. Yeah. You, you, you even hung out with Peter Strickland once, didn't you? I did. Fairly recently. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I guess, was it last year? Yeah. In, in New York when he was uh, here for uh, in fabric. Yeah. Yeah.
0: See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And like the, the, before everything went down, I, I had plans to meet up with Alan Moyle and Keith Gordon in person at some point within the year. And when, once all this went down, I was like, well, there goes that. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, And yet recently it was, it was a little bittersweet because the final, the final episode of the new season of Fargo was being filmed blocks away from, from my apartment and I could just walk over and I saw Jesse Buckley there in person. And at the same time, I was like, oh, man, Keith Gordon would have been directing this episode if it hadn't been for this pandemic. And maybe, you know, I would have hung out with him in person, like just even if it was just a quick cup of coffee or something. Yeah, that would, that would have been that would have been so cool to experience. But of course, you know, the whole world has changed and a lot has happened. And even watching them filming any every time they said cut, they had to put all their masks back on. So
1: Yeah, it's I I mean I know that your uh, your your old favorite Paul Thomas Anderson has been shooting some some scenes for his new film. So I mean, their production has resumed. I mean, my friend Dave uh, Ryder, who does the uh, from the neighborhood podcast with me, uh, he's he's back to work uh, on on a production down in you know down south. So I mean, things are you know creeping back into into production. I think Paul Schrader maybe finished his new movie. Like there's. There's things happening but um, it'll be a while I think before things are quote unquote normal. I think I honestly I don't think until there's a uh, a vaccine we'll really see something. I mean that's my hope is that once that happens, you know, maybe things can return to something like normal but you know there's Yeah,
0: that's that's what I'm thinking and hoping too. I mean again, there will be probably red tape behind that uh, you know, getting access to it and all that. I don't think it'll be instantaneous where everybody can be like okay now I've done, now there's a vaccine i i can go get one and feel okay right away so i'm sure there'll be a process after that oh, sure. of yeah. waiting so uh i'm i'm just trying to be optimistic that things might get back to normal by next year and and maybe more towards you know late summer early fall because uh you know as we know lots of film festivals happen around that time and That's always a treat to be able to go see a movie in a movie theater and talk to people about it afterwards in person and stuff. And I'm totally fine doing that, you know, wearing a mask and, you know, as long as it's limited seating
1: and everything. But uh,
0: like most people, yeah, I'm opting to just stay home and watch movies in the comfort of my own home. Well, I
1: I just interviewed Jonathan Hertzberg, who um, works at Kino Lorber and has a new label called Fun City Editions. And um, he... uh, he he was telling me that he thought that the virtual screenings that his label uh, Kino Lorber uh, put in place as soon as the theaters all shut shut shuttered, um, his feeling is that that's going to be maybe a permanent part of distribution going forward. As far as um, you know, those streaming new releases with them, um, they they've been including um, like Q and As, like filmmaker Q and As and such as like a. Uh, exclusive uh, kind of lure to get people to watch, watch their uh, new releases in in that platform versus maybe Amazon or iTunes or some of the other uh, streaming options. Um, what's great about that is that it, I mean, if you're talking about like an art house release that might not come to your town um, it's, it, it broadens it so that everybody has access to these things that are not uh, big commercial Hollywood releases, especially at the time when you know things are very uh kind of precarious for theatrical exhibition in general I think um but the downside of that is that yeah that does that does make um you know that only kind of increases the odds that theaters are not gonna have an easy time of it even when things do return to quote unquote normal um I yeah
0: don't know. that's what it seems like, and yeah, it's certainly interesting hearing you know the the, the fact that most of the critics that I know who normally who would venture to Toronto for, for their film festival, they're all just staying home and watching online screener links for things. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, I, I think that's a mixed blessing, you know? I mean, again, you don't have to venture out of your home and, but uh, at the same time, you miss that sense of community uh, meeting up with fellow friends and critics and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, I, I feel like I've gotten used to the fact that, most of my interaction is this, uh, podcasts, zoom, um, you know, maybe the occasional phone call and stuff, but you know, I, I, again, you don't know what you have until it's gone in some cases. And, uh, I certainly miss being able to at least get together with Patrick once a month, you know, and go to, to a movie or podcast about a movie. Uh, so I'm just, I just hope that this isn't because some people like to scare me and say, oh, this is gonna last for a few years, so get comfy. Yeah. I'm like, I I I don't know if I w I don't know if I wanna, you know, succumb to that thinking that it could be a few years, although I think it's it's
1: possible. But, nobody uh, really knows. And I think that some of that no. just sounds alarmist to me. I think that Yeah. I mean, beyond the fact that so many people are just ignoring the precautions altogether, I think that there's a lot of people that are mindful of those uh, precautions and wearing the masks and socially distancing and quarantining and such that as soon as they feel like they're not going to contract it or spread the disease, you know, and I think that a vaccine will be that, you know, will indicate that for many people. I think that people are just so desperate for things to return to normal that if it feels even halfway safe, they're going to go for it. I I think Mm -hmm. that some people might always want to avoid crowds, going forward for good this might have like traumatized a generation but i think most people are are once they feel like they're not going to die from it they're not going to kill their you know, you know their el- elderly you know relatives from it that they're going to uh resume how things were before that's that's my feeling but i could be wrong
0: well i hope you're right for, for even for just the sake of the movie going experience but also live concerts again Cause I had, I had some tickets this year, you know, and including seeing Greg Dooley yeah. uh, for a solo record. And uh, I was, I think I was supposed to, I think I had a VIP pass with that oh. too. So I was finally going to meet him and yeah, he's somebody I should, I want to talk with at some point in the future. But uh, at the same time, I haven't been as like enthusiastic about his solo work or even the last couple of Afghan wings records, but I just think he's an incredible songwriter in general so I'm, I'm, and he plus plus he puts on an amazing live show and always throws in a surprise cover or two
1: yeah yeah I I haven't kept up with Greg Dooley um, in in the last couple of years he used to he used to be my favorite you know for years I think uh, after the Afghan Wigs reunited I, I saw them once or twice you know in that new incarnation and I, I heard uh, due to the beast and th- I and then I just kind of checked out <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: and, th- and I can understand that. It, there hasn't been anything that's been
0: like, you know, on the level of what they've done in the past. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also curious about a particular screenwriter and how, our thoughts on, on his latest work, which we're going to talk about during the What We Watch segment. Coming up right here, right now.
2: Wild Crack Skyfall Sucker Punch Sweet smell of success Rules of the game A dirty shame. Coffee Wander Boys Mama and Bound I saw the Devil Big Walking Tall Miracle on 34th Street we're never going to survive unless we watch a lot of movies. Now we're going to have to talk about what we watched this week.
0: (laughs) I always want the guests to go first. And, I know we're going to be talking about the new Charlie Kaufman film kind of together for 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 my segment, mm-hmm. but is there something that you want to bring up here that
1: people should seek out? I mean, maybe an older title or something that you've seen. I mean, the only thing that I've I haven't seen that much this year that I was really crazy about, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I I've and there are certain films I liked that I saw at festivals that have come out this year, like yourself and yours, the Hong Sang-soo movie, like that's something I'd recommend. Oh, yeah. um, and there's a film that is still making the festival rounds called ask anybody. That's Evan Pershell's film. That's um, kind oh. of a, uh, uh, like a found footage essay film kind of using uh, material from uh, gay hardcore films that um, is like a, uh, Kind of like a day in the life, like sh- showing the the rituals of of, of of gay public life, like in an urban setting, like uh, like the s- sexual, uh, like like cruising or the docks or gay porno theaters. Like it's it's using the images of fantasy to um, kind of document like a certain type of reality. I think um, I, I, I'm not explaining it too well, but it, it, that's something I thought was really one of the more compelling films of the year. I think my f- one of my favorite narrative films of the year so far and it's something you can stream now and i think the blu-ray comes out this month um was abel ferrara's *Tommaso*? i don't know if you saw that with that uh, willem defoe no no
0: no no I doesn't he have two movies he's got he's got out? three
1: um oh because he has the projectionist which is a documentary and then he has a film called siberia that everybody that i know hmm. that has seen siberia said it's amazing um but Tommaso, I don't know. I mean, Abel Farrar is interesting to me because he's somebody that comes from like a pure exploitation movie background. Like, he comes from adult films, he comes from horror, he comes from crime films. And then his style seemed to morph into this slightly sleazy art movie territory that was like, maybe a little bit too lurid for art houses, but a little bit too introspective to be like straight up genre movies. And I'm thinking like bad Lieutenant is really where uh, he starts to make that swerve into things that are kind of like in the ballpark of like Scorsese in that it's like very searching, very like Catholic Italian American kind of concern, but like, um, but they get progressively like more, kind of hazy it's, it's hard to like like the, like and, and so the the recent kind of reemergence of ferrara as um you know working full strength with like several films now that like are getting very warm uh receptions from people i know I, it's it's heartening because he's somebody that i really didn't think uh would live to this long i mean he's somebody that had like a, a bad uh very public kind of substance abuse problem. I mean, if you've ever heard the driller killer commentary, he sounds like he's kind of nodding off on heroin on it. And his appearances on things like Conan O'Brien, he seems like very kind of, uh, kind of uh, off kilter. I don't know how to best describe it, but like, so the um, recent years, I mean, he's done films like Pasolini and uh, welcome to New York. And uh he he's somebody that I've always really kind of been fascinated with. And uh all I'll say about Tommaso, it's it's like it feels like a very autobiographical film. Willem Dafoe plays a um an expat uh film director with a uh substance abuse past that is now like living in Rome with a much younger wife and daughter, and um again, like kind of like how Ferrara lives now, and it's like him his character is like teaching acting classes and just kind of wandering around town uh but then like he's kind of slipping in and out of fantasy and also becoming uh concerned with notions of infidelity with his wife and then that kind of prompts his own behavior to start slipping a little bit it it's it's a character study that feels like um i mean it might not be for all tastes it's it's definitely like you know the you know introspective tortured male genius kind of filmmaker it might be like a, not to everybody's uh taste but i i thought it was really uh quite moving uh and one of my favorite willem defoe performances um i i think that if you ever like had a passing interest in abel ferrara's work it's it feels like a major film like it feels like very much like a, a late in the game like uh like autumnal years kind of like uh work from a director, like one of those, like looking back on a life kind of works um, that. Yeah. Maybe
0: like with Scorsese and the Irishman. Yeah, or exactly. Like that. Yeah.
1: Like that kind of thing. Um, so I, that's been one of the only films this year that I, I, I was really uh, strongly taken by um, for, for new narrative. Yeah.
2: Ferrara is definitely
0: itching up higher and higher on the uh, list of directors. I wouldn't mind covering in the next year or two, because uh, I'm only familiar really with the run from King of New York to the Addiction. Like I think just that. Well, no, I've seen Miz 45, yeah, and that's great. Uh, but like that 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 run in the early 90s, I think was was really strong, including his take on Body Snatchers. Yeah,
2: uh,
0: but I, a lot of I, there's a lot more, including. Post 90s, that I have no idea. Well, about. he's one of those directors
1: that was famous for like 20 years or so. And then, kind of like Peter Greenaway, like the distribution just got really wonky with his stuff. Like it, it became a case where, like, there's several films with like big names that have never come out properly here. Like, there's one called Mary with Juliet Binoche, one called Go Tales that has a lot of big names in it that they maybe played festivals but they just never they never really found proper distribution they never came out on home video or not streaming um you can get imports or bootlegs of things but it's it's a it's a weird career and he's like a um like an outspoken uh unpredictable figure like he had into a um you know like a, a battle with the studio when they wouldn't uh release welcome to new york uncut and so that you know he he wouldn't promote the film and then pasolini was like not out here for a couple of years and then um so it's it's uh, it's a hard career to totally follow but um and even some of the early films like china girl aren't quite as available as they used to be Uh, miss 45 has kind of re-emerged as a um i mean that's been a cult film for a long time um Mm king of new york i know just had like that whole uh, Quentin Tarantino did a whole podcast about his love for King of New York. I mean certain films stay in the conversation, but there's a lot of buried treasures. He's one of those artists like um <laughs> like Prince that like just was like almost too prolific and like weirdly distributed. So there's like buried gems like scattered if you if you dig for them. Um but yeah, I he would be an interesting character to uh to cover on Directors Club for sure. Yeah, and I just
0: looked up go-go tales and it's inspired by the killing of a Chinese bookie. <laughs> what? Uh, now I have to see that. Cause that's my, still my favorite cast of men. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's as good as that, but it's, 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 it's interesting. <laughs>
2: yeah. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> that,
0: that's a high bar for me. Uh, it's definitely in my, I think it's in my top 20. I'm sort of revised. That's another thing I'm doing. And for the, the 10th anniversary of director's club as I'm kind of just revising and going back and, Looking at my favorite films list and sort of saying, did I really love this one as much as I thought I did? And kind of like bumping up things. I might even have a new number one. I, I, that's kind of up in the air oh, <laughs> right well, now.
1: I, I'm not not, liter- not literally up in the air. I was, I was but, gonna uh, say, cause that's a good one. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I think, and, and it's funny cause like you'll, well, you know, one of his films you mentioned was The Addiction, and that's, that's a film that, you know, would yeah. resonate with one of the films we're talking about today as far as the, uh, the metaphor of uh vampirism for drug addiction.
0: Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And uh I man, I want I want another Lily Taylor comeback because anytime I go back and watch uh, I Shot Andy Warhol, I'm just like it's a crime that she didn't get, you know, at, at least a nomination for her performance in that. Yeah,
1: I, I sometimes wonder if she'll get another chance to um have a proper star vehicle that really makes use of her talents because she I mean I, I'm sure you remember as well as I do. I mean she was the it girl in indie film uh at one point. I mean before Parker Posey was, you know, the new queen. Like they always seem to find some new person. But Lily Taylor was maybe the most quirky and interesting of at least in my in my lifetime of like, you know, the uh queen of the indies, you know, with I think of things like uh, Girls Town and uh Dogville. Dogville, yeah. Um even um Arizona Dream. I don't know if you ever saw that with Johnny Depp, the uh, Emir Kusturica. You know, film. I should. I definitely should watch that
0: because that was one. I feel like my dad rented it, and I fell asleep <laughs> when I was when I first saw it. But if it's like you know, again, a weird, dreamy, surreal kind of a movie or something, I might appreciate it way more. It's now. very,
1: it's very whimsical and quirky. Uh, it's kind of Johnny Depp right before uh, what's eating Gilbert Grape. That kind of period Johnny Depp. Uh, it's got. Um, that's where I actually first saw Vincent Gallo, um, but Jerry Lewis, mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway, a lot of big names in it. Um, yeah, it's I, 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 a friend of mine just like gave it a one star review on Letterboxd, so <laughs> clearly it's not for all tastes. I knew a girl in college that was her favorite movie was Arizona Dream. Um wow. So it's that's but Lily great. Taylor is 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 pretty uh, pretty charismatic in it, and it's actually a pretty good use of Vincent Gallo. I mean, he's doing he's doing the same kind of irritated kind of character he does in things like Buffalo 66 it's hard to imagine I know but um. okay well so here we go two films
0: that uh, most cinephiles have been anticipating all year uh, I've finally seen and uh, I'm definitely going to have a hard time expressing my thoughts uh, on both mainly because I didn't quite fully grasp what they're trying to say in the end. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. And I'm not quite ready to say like either one is good or bad. <laughs> I think it's okay. So let's start, you know, I'm just going to briefly go through tenant because I don't think I can spoil it because I couldn't comprehend it. Okay. And it's not really a movie I think you can spoil. Necessarily, I mean, there are things that happen obviously where you can, because to me it, it's what happens is akin to a bond movie. It's very conventional action packed stuff only with a Nolan twist in that he's very similar to link letter, very obsessed with time and its place and what it does to our reality and things like that. And just our perceptions of it and, you know, I, I, again, like, I think if Nolan had actually released this on a streaming platform, it would have been great. It would have been a great help for not only an instant rewatch, but to be able to read the subtitles. Because a lot of the criticisms people have about Nolan's previous work, when it comes to, like, the overbearing score and sound design, I think are, like, way more in the forefront for this film. Uh, like, I can pretty much comprehend what's going on in all the other Nolan movies, even if I can't hear exactly what words are being spoken, but here it was, oof! I was like, I don't know, man. I think the only way I can watch this is with subtitles uh, for the future. And I don't know if that that's good or bad, or if that was like a conscious choice on his part, because I don't know if there's just something with his ears, (laughs) you know, I don't know if there's something going on there, but you know, as far as being like awestruck by it, there are moments. I think that there are really cool sequences. I think it's worth seeing. Um, but really it's just a time travel movie where time is inverted and you have a bad guy played by Kenneth Branagh who really just wants to destroy the world. And you know, again, it's just got Bond like uh, characteristics that, you know, I don't necessarily I've never been a big Bond guy, to be honest. Yeah, me you know, and, and never really like got the appeal of all of that outside of going, Oh, that was cool. He did that cool thing <laughs> in the movie. That's cool. I enjoy that. And that's kind of what my experience was watching. This was like, there are definitely cool moments. There are definitely things I enjoyed watching. And I'm all about the exploration of time in, in film. And, you know, it's probably why I'm a Christopher Nolan fan to begin with, because you go all the way back to Memento. What does it open with, but a reverse shot of a bullet going into a gun. You know, and I think, I think between the experience of uh, of Memento, which I still think is his best film, yet I have a stronger emotional response to Interstellar, and I understand why people don't. <laughs> I understand why people are find that movie to be cold or whatever. They just don't have that response to it, but I do very much so. Um, again, it could be just like you know, father child things going on in that movie that really just gets to me, but. Um, You know, John David Washington is essentially just James Bond trying to stop someone from destroying the world. And Robert Pattinson joins in on the fun. Elizabeth Debicki is kind of the standout because she's just kind of walks the fine line between being a femme fatale and a damsel in distress. But really, you know, this plot is not that exciting. It's just how he approaches the action sequences and really great camera effects that, you know, make it worth your, worth your while, but I couldn't follow the motivations of the characters or why certain things were even happening. So it was really hard to have any investment in how things play out, you know? Um, So yeah, like, where do you stand on Nolan in in general? Because I, I, again, like, I think there are cool things about this movie, but I don't know if, you know, someone who isn't into Nolan would, would really appreciate it.
1: I, I, I'm not a Nolan person, uh, but I don't, i i have friends that hate christopher nolan's films and I, I i don't count myself in that camp either i i kind of uh i watch each film like interested in seeing like i like the idea of christopher nolan as far as like a spectacle filmmaker that is also trying to tackle ideas and is not dumbing it down for a mass audience that is you know a um maybe like a Ridley Scottish kind of, kind of figure maybe Um, Mm -hmm. like not, not, not a uh, natural born entertainer like Spielberg, but um, not a, um, but, but, but somebody, but somebody that is trying to make mass entertainments that are, that are smart, that are visually uh, like that, that, that trade in spectacle. I think for me, I liked Memento a lot when it came out in two thousand one. Uh, I liked Following when I caught up with it on video, which came out on video in the wake of Memento's success. And I've seen everything else. I have not seen Tenet yet, but um, yeah, I, 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 I don't really feel strongly about anything he's done since Memento. Um, I don't really hate anything. I, I just, it just, I watch them. I read the discussions of them. Um, you know, uh, but that I don't I've I've never felt like compelled to rewatch any of them. Um I think I rewatched The Dark Knight. Um, but even that I I don't I I the thing I thought about The Dark Knight was just I was amazed at how right wing it was, but all of my liberal friends loved it. Because because <laughs> it feels like a film about Dick Cheney's uh torture techniques being justified to fight terrorism. That's what it feels like. So um you know i th- i thought yeah. that that was interesting and it's it, you know you mentioned the the murky sound and i think it is interesting how it's so hard to make out the dialogue i mean i love robert altman and i think that uh nolan is definitely the least concerned with clear dialogue uh as any filmmaker since altman um but you know but i right. and, you know when i watch something like uh dunkirk i can appreciate like you know he's clearly got a knack for Uh, visually striking uh, set pieces. Like I'm thinking of the soldiers under the flaming water. I mean, there's things, you know, striking images. I thought interstellar um, what the prestige, like these, you know, there's, these are attractive looking films. I I don't feel like uh, I'm being talked down to uh, by them, Um, but I don't, I don't feel like any strong uh, connection with his stories. I, I think that, you know, when we talk about the Kaufman film, um, but I'm not really drawn to I don't I don't dislike puzzle films, but I'm not like that doesn't excite me to like decode something um, for film. Um, well, you're a fan of Lynch, obviously,
0: and I've I was talking to I actually like emailed Tallarico, Brian Talarico, and I said that um, so about about the last act of I'm thinking of ending mm-hmm. things. I have this tendency to want to solve the puzzle and figure out what does this mean? Why is this here? And then he's, his reply was, I don't think you can do that with this movie. And I think that's, that holds true for a lot of Lynch's work. Like my instinct is to solve the mystery or to figure out like the last episode of the the last season of Mm -hmm. twin peaks. Why is this happening? What does this mean? What, what the hell is this? Well, (laughs) you know, just like a lot of things, like the questions I want answered, but I think even Lynch himself wouldn't say that there are answers or you have to come up with your own answers or any number of scenarios where there really isn't a clear. Yeah. Answer.
1: And I mean, I, I, I have satisfying interpretations of things like lost highway and Mulholland drive, you know, as far as what I think is happening. Like that doesn't feel like, you know, random disconnected scenes. Like they feel like they have a logic to them. Um, but it's not, I mean, that's not the attraction to me is like, Oh, see, isn't that clever? Like I don't, the cleverness of it is not the appeal. It's the emotional uh, impact of Lynch that I respond to as far as like, they are either funny or they are sexy or they are scary or they are like, they, they tap into a kind of dread or feeling. You know, when I look at Christopher Nolan's films and his films are not as, um, like overtly challenging as David Lynch, as far as like trying to figure out what's going on, I don't think. But, um, you know, I can, I can appreciate that he casts charismatic, you know, movie star actors, and his films look nice, and they, they the money's on the screen. Like, they, they feel like big movies that are not superhero movies. I mean, well, the Batman movies are superhero movies, but like, you know, the, I don't know. I mean, I, I like that he makes films that make so many people happy, and people younger than myself seem to, like, you know, put him on the, you know... Uh, As as one of the great directors of of you know working now, I mean for me like someone like David Fincher I think of as like a um, a a sleek Hollywood director that uh, uh, does smart commercial entertainments. His his work seems to resonate with me more, even though it's not as uh, I think I would it's not as full as like you know pondering ideas, you know. And uh, but that's fine. I don't you know I think you know yeah I mean. I don't know. I I I like the like, and Christopher Nolan is somebody that fought the good fight to preserve celluloid, like with clout that um, Mm -hmm. other directors didn't have. And it, you know, he clearly, um, who is it, the Quay Brothers? Like he, you know, he he celebrates certain things that I like. I he seems like an intelligent, nice person in interviews. Like I, I like the idea of Christopher Nolan as a as a powerful director. But you know, like when Warner Brothers you know, uh, in the wake of inherent vice, you know, said that they weren't really looking to work with directors and give them final cut anymore. And I think they were thinking about Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, but they were gonna, you know, make an exception for Nolan and Eastwood. And I just thought, you know, like Uh. I, uh, you know, you put Paul Thomas Anderson next to Christopher Nolan. And, uh, I just like every single thing that Anderson does, I find just way more interesting than even the best Christopher Nolan films. Um, But it says a lot about the way Hollywood works right now, that they don't really know how to make Anderson films into the kind of big events that a Christopher Nolan film always is. Um, But, well, it's interesting because like, I I think, you know,
0: and I don't want to even sort of reduce both, Charlie Kaufman's latest and Christopher Nolan's latest as bordering on self-parody. But there's a little, I don't know there. It almost just seems like he, he got lost in his own idea and it didn't, it didn't, I don't know. It didn't just click. And you know, there, there's a couple of aha moments, but you don't really feel any sort of emotion. And I guess there are people who can watch something like interstellar too and not feel any emotion, um or you know the the Marion Cotillard stuff in inception there are people who can watch that and not feel any emotion and just sort of get caught up in the spectacle of it all uh but i there, there are moments in Christopher Nolan's films that i do sense something more than just oh this was cool and this is just an awesome entertaining spectacle uh so i i i definitely you know really respond strongly to a couple of Christopher Nolan movies and with Charlie Kaufman's latest i'm a little surprised But I think that's also – it also has to do with expectations because Synecdoche, New York is in my top five favorite films, and I have a strong emotional response to that movie. So I think in some regards I was expecting a little bit more from his latest uh, to, like, feel – I don't know. And I think it's just because there are so many questions, and I don't want to say that he got lost in his own ideas to where that nothing seems clear because I'm sure – And many people watching this can figure it out what, you know, especially the final act is supposed to say and what it means. I just didn't find it to be that great. (laughs) (laughs) Just the final act, really. Like I actually love the, and I mentioned the link letter earlier because I was thinking of, you know, before midnight and just like the, the conversations those two characters are having Mm -hmm. about life, love, you know, art all sorts of things. And I, I, like I said, I can watch good actors talking for long stretches of time and not be bored by that. Some people are, but yeah, I, I, I found the road trip stuff endlessly interesting and compelling. I loved the, you know, when they finally get to the farmhouse, I loved all that. And then my mind, and similarly, cause I read the book, I turned on it a little bit at the end. So, what was your experience with this? Because uh, I want to hear. Yeah, I mean, it too.
1: I, I, liked it. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, and I, I also share your love for Key New York. I didn't feel like um, this moved me the way that that does. Um, I thought, um, I, I thought it, it it called attention to itself as being as, uh kind of taking a chance in having certain poems or certain monologues uh play out for long what feel like long stretches of screen time um i thought i i i i i like the um the rapport with those actors and like those scenes in the car uh it, it felt like a um like parts of it feel like almost designed to be uh, um, performed on stage, which you know, I guess I don't know if that's a deliberate choice. You know, given given how the film concludes, um, you know, I, I you know, t- talking about puzzles again, and I think that this is a film that is clearly meant to be decoded, and uh, little clues and Easter eggs and all that, and oh, there's going to be so
0: many YouTube videos, people. Yeah. There's going to be so many of those people like, okay, this is what this meant. This is what that meant. Yeah, And so for
1: it to be some kind of meditation on love and death and time and aging, I think that all of the the games uh, that it's playing kind of put me uh, at arm's length with any kind of um, like maybe the emotional reaction that. I think I'm supposed to have, maybe I'm not supposed to have it. Maybe it's meant to be more of an intellectual thing than an emotional thing. Um, you know, I, I thought it, it, it seemed to almost, uh, tread towards, uh, horror movie territory when they get to the house and you have the scratches on the door and you have like, um, I, I read someone compare it to get out a little bit in terms of the tone. And sure, sure, I can sure. see that. Um, you know, I've seen it twice, and I still feel the same. Like I liked it. Uh, I, I I don't know if I could explain every single thing, but I can. I I sort of have a comfortable sense of like what things are supposed to mean, what characters. Uh, like it's funny thinking I thinking about like something like eternal sunshine, of the spotless mind and like the idealized woman in that and like how it's a little bit more complicated as you dig closer, look closer. Um, it's the same thing here. It's like, what seems to be an ideal woman, um, is, is really more, uh, I don't know if we get into spoilers, but you know, it, it, it's, it's more complicated. It's more complicated than, than, uh, than would appear on the surface, I guess. But, um,
0: yeah, I'm I'm okay with because because his latest is on Netflix. This is a movie podcast, and I would think that most cinephiles at this point would be very curious and would have watched it. If you haven't for some reason watched it yet, you can pause this episode, fast forward it. Uh, you know, go watch it first because I I think you know I think it's okay to talk about spoilers. In other words, I just think. Because it's so widely available now. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, maybe, maybe you won't love it on a second viewing, but there are at least things you'll pick up on probably that you may not have noticed, or you'll pay attention to other things on a second viewing that I think are interesting at least. But like the, the responses I've heard have been varying, including what my initial response was reading the source material was that you just took your most interesting character and reduced her to being a figment of this man's imagination, the janitor's imagination, I guess. Yeah. And I don't think that sits well with me in the end, because once you take Jesse Buckley out of the picture, I think it loses something and it does become more Kaufman surrealist in ways that I think makes sense. And I think definitely they're there not just to be quirky and weird. I think they mean something. I just didn't find as much pleasure out of it. And by the very end, I just kind of went, huh. As opposed to, oh, (laughs) you know, like, oh, you would. Okay. that's the note you're ending on. It
1: was more like "Hmm, the second time I saw it, I saw it with friends that were more well-versed with the musical Oklahoma. And so they were drawing all sorts of parallels to the story of that. And I haven't seen Oklahoma since, I was in 8th grade so I <laughs> I don't really remember it well enough yeah, to best. uh yeah. you know I mean I did notice when she starts quoting the Pauline Kale review of a woman of the influence and I'd noticed that it was a Pauline Kale uh, collection of essays for keeps in the bedroom that she finds um so I got that and I wasn't clear why she was all of a sudden talking like Pauline Kale other than you know <laughs> smoking a cigarette well uh, other than uh, that she's supposed to represent someone who's smarter than him uh and but also like y- you know the, it, it evokes those kind of relationships where you share your love of something and then your partner uh just you know tears it apart but you know yeah that happened to me, That happened to me in my last relationship where i was like oh that's, that's how you feel about this, but it happens to everybody, but you know, but, but, but to to have it torn apart in the language of Pauline Kale, I think what that means is that like, she's made up of all these things that are in his head. And he's somebody that grew up reading Pauline Kale reviews. So he's turning, he's using Pauline Kale to tear apart his film in, you know, through this projection um is how i read that scene but what that all but what's what, it what that all means you know um yeah i i you know i wasn't sure if the if you know the um the intimations about uh sissies or the fact that he's like a you know a, a drama you know a, a like a uh like a drama school kind of k- kid you know like if there's a um like there you know or like the the, the line about um you know, homosexuality being something that was thought of as a negative condition with mo- over overly um, mothering kind of figures up until uh, a certain point in history. Like, I don't know if there's like s- things that are coding it that like he's either closeted or bisexual or gay. Um, and it's not a whole lot that really pays off that interpretation, but those lines create that question mark in my head. Like, is, is there something I'm not reading correctly in terms of what they're saying about that character's sexuality? Um, You know? Yeah. I think it keeps everything
0: ambiguous to maybe a fault In, in this case. Like I don't mind having questions and lingering on with them. You know, I don't, that's actually, you know, part of the fun in some regards and certainly you have conversations with different people and you might get a different interpretation. Uh, But I I know, you know, from hearing Q&A's with Charlie Kaufman, and he's certainly not going to spell things out, he's more or less he made a a conscious choice to give this figment of this janitor's imagination more agency in that she can, you know, challenge him or she can basically have a differing opinion as opposed to just being this, you know, ideal, uh, you know, lovey-dovey. Almost what I thought of too was a movie that I haven't, since it came out, I haven't thought of in a long time is Ruby Sparks. Which
1: I've never seen. because yeah.
0: yeah, because in that movie, really, it's about a character who no longer wants to be a manic pixie dream girl. You know, that like she's, she wants to be a fully realized human being and not just a figment of this writer's imagination.
1: Yeah, well, the character in the Kaufman film, I mean, she's more our point of identification than the guy that's dreaming her up. And, and the fact yeah. that we hear her questions um, we identify with her. So the fact that she's you know quote unquote not real um, is kind of a confounding element of it, but I mean I, but again it feels like you know part of the game that he's playing and that's that's fine um, but it, it is you know you know, you can project all sorts of things onto it because so many things are left. Un, you know, unexplained. Or even thinking about the ice cream parlor and the, uh, you know, the, there's uh, kind of some mean girls, and then one that has like um, uh, skin, oh, like gosh. a skin condition that that you know is she supposed to represent our male uh, lead character? And the fact that she's a woman, what is that saying? Is like the fact that there's a gender swap? Is it saying that? There's a a trans kind of situation, you know, in terms of like how we're supposed to read that character. It's, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be like a thousand different theories on it, which is great. But, um, yeah, I mean, watching it twice, I've I've enjoyed it. Um, I haven't read any reviews of it yet. Weirdly, um, I, I, I it seems like a film that would be polarizing. Um, You told me before we started recording that some interpret it as a celebration of incels, which I didn't get. (laughs) Well, that that I think comes from
0: her final, like when she gets to the high school and meets the janitor, she has this long monologue to him about, you know, because he's asking her what's What's your boyfriend look like? And she goes, well, i don't I don't know what he looks like. That's like trying to describe a mosquito that bit me forty years ago right. or something. And she talks about this encounter at a bar on trivia night where this guy was just creeping on her. And it's implied that it's supposed to be mm-hmm. him that he's the this creepy dude just like staring at her, not really going up to her and talking to her. And she just wanted to get away from this creepy guy. And I I guess a lot of people see that as like, well, this janitor is just this lonely, pathetic creep. And there's also this blink if you miss it shot where when they're in the car outside the high school and they're kissing, suddenly you see this insert of the janitor peering in in a peephole, almost like in Mm -hmm. Psycho. And I never interpreted, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't really know what that was. I was just like a flash of something. I was like, oh, this is just his mind creeping in all of a sudden and, you know, jarring things up or whatever. But some people thought of it as like he's looking in on the high school girls, (laughs) bringing it back to Porky's. Uh, But I, I really didn't see that. And some like some people are are saying that this guy is, you know, pathetic and creepy and weird. I just thought of him as sad and lonely. I I mean, to me, it's like he he spent most of his life taking care of his parents and not having any romantic connections with anybody. And maybe all he did was just like consume all this pop culture and you know, and just lived in his bedroom most of his life, to where you know he never really got out and you know had real relationships or anything. So I, I don't get the whole incel interpretation necessarily, but I'm not dismissing it either.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, when I think of incels I think of anger, maybe, or like, re, like a bitterness. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't really get that tone from it. I mean, maybe there's a bitterness to how the girls at the ice cream shop are represented as, like, yeah, that's overly, another angle. Sure. mean, and that you know, you should go order the ice cream because they won't wait on me. They don't like me. Like maybe there's some of that to it, but I, 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 it's, it's such a small part of the film. It's, it's. I, I, I don't know that I thought of it as a celebration of, um, you know, some kind of outsider, like in the way, the way, like, like, like say, like taxi driver, something like Taxi him. Driver, you know, which you know comes up in those kind of conversations mm-hmm. is a, um, you know, it's complicated because it makes a hero, you know, even an ironic hero out of somebody that you know maybe fits a little bit more easily into that kind of bitter resentful lonely man thing um i i i saw this as maybe more kind of contemplative than like angry um but i i don't know i mean not to say that if if that's how it plays for you as a as a uh celebration of an incel kind of character um if that's how it plays for you then that's not wrong i mean you have to be able to I mean, find it in the film, but if, if it reads that way for people, then I don't know. It didn't read that way to me though. No, I, it, I didn't get that impression. I mean,
0: like when she has that monologue towards the janitor towards the end and then ultimately, like, it seems like she's full of anger that this happened, you know, like I just wanted to have a nice night with my, with my girlfriend at this bar and this guy, just wouldn't like stop looking at me or stop or start creeping on me. And I just wanted to get away from him. Like she seems very angry at that moment, but then ultimately what does she do at the very end? She gives him like this pity hug, you know? And I, that to me felt very confusing. <laughs> like it, it seemed to like jump from emotion to emotion in a way that made me go. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to interpret all of this, especially everything that follows where it's, it, you know, it turns into La La <laughs> Land and then a beautiful mind and then an o- Oklahoma. And then we have the animated talking pig. And I wouldn't say any of that stuff is bad, but it doesn't involve her point of view or Jesse Buckley at that point. And I kind of tuned out, but at the same time, I'm like, this is Charlie Kaufman. This is not, this is not going to be, you know, like Sophia Coppola's interpretation of this material. I, I think that he's more drawn towards the sad and lonely janitor character, And, you know, ultimately that's also what the book is about, but with, with both the book and and the film, I ultimately not happy with how things play out. I don't dislike it either though. Like, I think it's an interesting way to go. It's interesting series of notes to go yeah, out on. I mean,
1: it's a film that I no. still feel like I'm untangling and I apologize to any listeners if I'm not like totally articulating, you know, myself very well on this film. But like, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it twice. I enjoy, I enjoy individual scenes. I, I like thinking about how they fit together, but I, I don't know that I have a completely satisfying, like, well, this is clearly what it all means. I mean, it, it just feels like a reflection on a life that's been, uh, a reflection on a sad life and like a, you know, a, a character's fantasy. But that also feels like a very limited way of, of experiencing it to just be like, Oh, you know, I, yeah. I never had a girlfriend. I wish I, my girlfriend was like this. And, you know, and here's, here's, you know, somebody that will order the ice cream for me, <laughs> you know, and, and, my, and impress my parents, even the way that when he visits the parents and at a certain point, their ages become very fluid. I thought, you know, at that point, oh, is this going to be like Synecdoche in New York and about death and aging all of a sudden? Because I didn't really get the impression that that's where we were going. Um, I think that's part of yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly when you get but to like, I- you know, the frozen lambs and like, oh, this is a uh, foreshadowing of the frozen, you know, foreshadowing the ending, I guess. Um, you know, when you get to talking pigs, you know, it, that kind of like whimsy or the, even the, even the musical element, the dance element. Um, I, I didn't feel like, um, like say something like punch drunk love when that evokes, like the the musical in a very oh, quirky yeah. way. Like I feel like that puts its heart like much, it wears its heart much more like openly on its sleeve, you know? And I think that with Kaufman, you know, he's, he's, he, he goes out of his way to make fun of manipulative Hollywood romance, you know, by having the Zemeckis thing. <laughs> the so Zemeckis, I know that. Yeah.
0: Who's never made a movie like that to my, I mean, I guess welcome to Marwin
1: maybe, but yeah, no, no, it, it I, didn't feel like a Zemeckis film at all to me. It just felt like he, he is such a hip director to attack because he made Forrest Gump or whatever. I don't know. Like, I mean, it, it just felt like, he's a stand-in for uh, Hollywood schmaltz. But I think that like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't even know who would have made that film like realistically, like Nancy Zach Graff or somebody. <laughs>
0: Nancy Myers or
1: Zach Graff. Yeah. yeah. But like, um,
0: you know, I don't know. Like, I also get the feeling that his philosophy might be, and again, this is very, it's again, it's kind of cynical but I also think that Charlie Kaufman might be that <laughs> um, is that all we do is consume all this media, pop culture content, romantic comedies, books to where it's going to just leave us isolated and depressed because we're not actually engaging with real human beings. So maybe we're all going to get old and die and just be surrounded by our blue rays.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's definitely a valid <laughs> well, reading
0: of it. Um, I mean, like, I think that makes me angry Two, because like, I mean, probably because like, (laughs) and this goes back to an episode where Patrick and I are like, why the hell are we even podcasting? What's the point to all this? And my ultimate like conclusion to this, what like to that conversation, to that question was, well, I'm not married and I don't have kids right now. (laughs) So this is what I'm doing. I have the time to do it. I'm passionate about it, you know, but like, If I'm someone who just consumes all this media and never finds a life partner, am I essentially just, you know, the janitor? I don't, I don't, I wouldn't go that far, but I just wonder if maybe this is a cautionary tale too, to some degree. Like he's saying, you know, this is, if this is all you do and you lead this lonely life, then you ultimately may just, you know, crumble in your own head and, not really ever be yeah well i mean it
1: does it does feel like it has a note of self-pity about itself which which i think happens with most kaufman films as far as like that third act always feels like like a little bit maudlin and introspective whether it be being john malkovich or eternal sunshine or synecdoche new york i mean even adaptate well adaptation is a little different but i mean they 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 feel like um yeah, they 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 get they they seem to get like too worried about life to even like you know move forward like with an, like a narrative momentum. Which I remember that being the complaint about being John Malkovich when it came out in '99. That like it it seemed to go for like uh, this kind of melancholy philosophical tone, and people wanted the playful surrealism. But I think that's what makes that film more than just a you know quirky exercise. Um, that that has those um, that that heavy hearted element to it, but you know, I, I I don't know if it's just he's done this kind of thing before. Um, so it, That's yeah, what I but thought, it, but yeah, you know, at the same time, I've seen so few films that really stood out to me this year that even if it's a variation on things he's done, um, it's still I, I yeah. And as a fan of great actors, I mean. Like this ensemble
0: alone to me is pure joy to like all everybody in this is great in different ways. And certainly I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on board for whatever Jesse Buckley does because I haven't seen, um, her film from last year, wild Rose or beast. And I guess both of those are standouts. Wild
1: Rose and I liked her in it a lot. So yeah, I didn't even, yeah. yeah. I
0: mean, I just, I just, you know, like this was the movie that made me go, okay, well, I, I just want to watch everything she does. Cause I think she's, I mean, she has that incredible moment with the poem and it actually, you know, sort of breaks the fourth wall and she looks right at the camera. And, uh, i kind of went, well, I'm in <laughs> like, I just think that, uh, you know, she's remarkable. I've, I've loved Jesse Plemons since breaking bad. Uh, and you know, what can you say about? David Duoliss and
1: Tony Collette at this point. Yeah, the, I, it's always nice to see them and Jesse Plemons. I thought um did you, were you reminded at all of Philip Seymour Hoffman? It felt like it felt like he yeah. was doing yeah. what a younger Philip Seymour Hoffman would have done in that in that part a little bit.
0: I think yeah. so. Yeah. Definitely and uh I don't know. I, I I I see him going in the Michael Shannon direction too like just being really good at what he does as a character actor. Um, you know, like he can play creepy, but he can play nice, sincere too. You know, I, 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 I imagine that, uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to continue to go on and do great things for sure. Uh, and you know, certainly it, it it made me think too of Philip Seymour Hoffman because of, uh, he has a small role in the, in the master. And I like they that you see, I could see similarities like people call him as, you know, as looking like Matt Damon. And I understand that, too. But I see him as like, you know, another Philip Seymour Hoffman for the future to where I'm like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, you can kind feel free to cast Jesse Plemons (laughs) in your next movie if you want, because I think he would do great things. in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I mostly associated him with uh, his his supporting turn in uh, Game Night. Which I thought was um oh. Oh. Yeah, which was like the standout character uh to me in that film. I I, I don't really know Breaking Bad, but um but I, I know him from Game Night. And so I thought, you know, maybe the, the, his his uh his appearance plus Kaufman's writing, it just reminded me of 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 Hoffman in, in uh New York. But um yeah, I could see him uh being used, you know, with, you know, uh, by other filmmakers. I, it's hard. I don't really have a beat on him yet. As far as like a persona, it feels like a character actor to me. So I have no idea like what he will be working on next.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you one thing. Jesse Buckley is going to be great on the new season of Fargo. I just know it. (laughs) I just, I can sense it already based on just watching one scene being filmed. I was like, Whoa, that's, that's going to be great. If that makes it into the episode, uh, but at the same time, I think she's, you know, she's definitely playing like the Coen brothers, goofy, quirky caricature mm-hmm. kind of role, uh, as a nurse in this new, new season. I mean, uh, I really like these seasons of Fargo because they basically play like 10 hour Coen brothers movies and there, there's like a lot of hit, like a lot of Easter eggs and a lot of lines of dialogue thrown in Like if you're a Coen brothers fan, then you know where it's from or something. So I think that's playful in that regard and fun. Um, but, but each, each season has its own plot. And it's really weird and interesting. Uh, they capture the spirit of the Coen brothers in like a 10 episode arc with really great performances, including Jesse Plemons, uh, who was in season two where he met his future wife, Kirsten
1: Dunst. Yeah. I, I haven't watched Fargo. I saw the first episode of it, but, uh, I've not. I I only hear good things. So one day I'll I'll take that uh, take the, take the plunge. Yeah. yeah,
0: definitely. The seasons get better as they go along too. Yeah. So uh, let's do this, Bill. We have a director uh-huh. to talk about. <laughs> a very very interesting director, that I'm glad we chose. He is Mr. Bob Clark. Mm-hmm.
2: name's Robert or Bob Directed by Mr. Clark I think his first name's Robert or Bob People watching A Christmas Story Olivia Hussey Where are the calls coming from? In the house! Death green dead of Night Night Walker Have you seen it. Which title? Never ever watch loose Canons? Let's talk Bob Clark
1: um, tell you well, what. we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay,
0: let's do it. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Um, a director that has the wonderful honor of making Ebert's great movies list and his most hated movies list.
1: Can you guess what's made the great movies list? Uh, Loose cannons. No, it's I'm trying to think (laughs) baby geniuses too. Um, Yeah, no, it's obviously a Christmas story, uh, which is, is um, very much an anomaly. Well, yes and no, because um, that, that film, Well, I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that film seems to mark a break where he starts moving towards the latter half of his career, which is very concentrated on family films Mm -hmm. and films for children, um, which makes them kind of tricky to talk about critically as like a bunch of (laughs) grown men. Because we're not really the target audience for a film like Baby Geniuses.
0: (laughs) I don't know if anybody is, but, uh, you know, he started out pretty young as a writer, like he. I think when he was 12, he wrote a sequel to Gone with the Wind just for fun. Uh, but he's kind of gone on to say like he's just a regular Joe when it comes to movie viewing that he doesn't like he loves movies, but he doesn't love movies in the way that Tarantino does or De Palma or something. You know, he, he didn't necessarily seek out to become a director. It just sort of happened.
1: Early yeah, on. I, I mean, he's I mean, he's somebody that uh Was a like a high school jock that was a um you know and and came from like a relatively poor background too. I mean, he was somebody that like uh, like his father died um, when he was a young man. Like he he was somebody that uh, kind of. but he, he he's somebody that like um went to a couple of different schools um grew up in Fort Lauderdale like I think from the age of as it was age of eight but um but became interested in arts you know uh, in college writing and directing plays and falling in with a group of like minded uh, creatives um th- people like Alan Ormsby and Jeff Gillen that would be like major uh, contributors to the early uh, genre films that you know uh, make up the uh, his his nineteen seventies output um you know he's i mean his earliest films i mean would be firmly in that in that like late sixties exploitation movie kind of uh camp like um uh, things like you know the kind of things that something weird would distribute I, I didn't know that he was the assistant director on a film called shanty tramp which is like this fun little exploitation mm-hmm. film um was someone i interviewed for supporting characters lisa Petrucci that's a film that she really likes a lot um And then the very first film that I'm aware of is a film called The Emperor's New Clothes, which I think is Lost now, um, starring John Carradine. But it's funny because I found local press coverage when that film came out. And it said that he had directed other films, written short stories, even had a book of poetry published. I have no idea if any of that is accurate because I found a lot of things in interviews with him that were not, uh, to my knowledge, true. So I don't know if... Maybe they got mixed up with another bob clark or or, or he just <laughs> would say things that you know to puff up his resume that might not have been totally yeah. accurate i don't know but um yeah. um yeah he was approached by
0: uh i think it was after college he you know he directed a stage production of arthur miller's a view from the bridge and then he was approached by the, this guy named charlie,
1: Brun, charlie brown who was I believe charlie, it's charlie oh, is, brown. is it charlie brown Oh, wow. But spelled like B-R-A-U-N.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, okay. Yeah, maybe it was just a misspelling here I got. But it, uh, <laughs> he was uh, working on a movie called She-Man. And, I, you know, it, I tried watching it, but I just could not get into it. That bongo score really got on my nerves after a while. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, you were saying it was made at a, at a time when, like, yeah, the, these these types of films were 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 accepted and you know i I, but even clark himself has dismissed it really as not being his official first feature that it was just kind of like a job that
1: he did she she man is interesting i mean it's it's you know he's using a couple of actors who were uh female impersonators leslie marlowe and dorian wayne um drag performers of the early 60s and um you know i mean it's it's the kind of thing when you're dealing with like i mean this the plot of that essentially is a um a uh like a like a like a like a uh, a bachelor like a playboy uh war vet who's just kind of lounging around the pool with girls but he has an interest in S&M, I think and then the um the thing is he gets contacted by this dominatrix and blackmailed into becoming his female servant and so he's shaved given estrogen put in a little maid's costume and he kind of grows to like it a little bit like it's a weird uh it's a weird scenario. Like it is, I've heard it dis- described as transploitation in that. It's like the, the lure for the audience would be seeing men, uh, as mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's speaking to a very specific demographic of the exploitation movie market. I, and, um, it's, it's so qu- quirky that, uh, it has a certain appeal to it and it isn't totally, offensive i mean even by contemporary standards it, it it's it's probably a little bit e- creaky in places but it's not like um it, it's not really condescending to tr- transgender type characters yeah and i didn't get that impression from what i saw yeah but, it, it, but but i pretty much yeah it to their meaning. but the idea of forced feminization it was- you know um is is mm-hmm. you know, a provocative one and then uh it's it 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 has um, God. What am I thinking of? Like it, like it, it has like the, the 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 white coat kind of uh, kind of framing device of like a doctor kind of talking to the audience to like explain the the uh, you know the the the, yeah. the dispositions of the characters. And um, what I also thought was interesting is that Alan Ormsby uh, directed a film that was thought to be lost um, for a long time. Uh, Th- called The uh, Murder on the Emerald Seas. I saw a screening of it when they uh, uncovered a print uh, in Philly a couple of years ago. Huh. But that's a film about a cop being forced to go undercover as a woman on an ocean cruise to uh, bust some drug dealers. And it's it's got like a slasher movie kind of element to it too, like somebody is wearing a mask and stabbing people. And this is like 1973 or four, I think. So it, it's kind of like a... I mean the slasher element is a s- small component of it but it's a, definitely a pre-halloween kind of masked stalker thing um but like that that notion of like people being forced to uh do things in drag you know kind of connects the two films and they work together but um Ormsby and Clark had separate projects with that that very specific weird theme yeah but this definitely
0: wasn't a passion project for Clark and you know i mean once him and Ormsby teamed up, I I believe they just, they just went and saw like night of the living dead. And then they decided, you know, we should try doing our own spin on it. And, uh, (laughs) with what, with like a budget of $40,000, they went and made this, you know, super low budget children shouldn't play with dead things. Zombie feature that, um, I remember renting with my friends and it was one of the few that we kind of didn't get into. (laughs) Like we just went, uh, this just might I don't know. There's just this isn't working for us. This isn't making us laugh or there isn't like that kind of outrageousness that we're used to. It's just a lot of it's just kind of I don't know, shrill to me and just goofy and not that interesting. Um, like to me it's it's definitely like a first feature. It's a you know, it's something that obviously they had fun doing. There's no doubt that like all the people involved we're having a blast, sort of just you know acting like zombies and just you know getting
1: crazy together. Yeah, yeah I I, but, uh, I understand any objection to this one, but and I didn't like it when I was a teenager, but I I've I've grown to really like children shouldn't play with dead things. Um, it's funny because it's um, you know Alan Ormsby and Bob Clark and like uh, Jeff Gillen, like they they worked on each other's plays. Like they were they were writing and directing and acting in one of those plays in college, and so they have this kind of uh, like. Almost like a like rep company kind of feeling right from the get go with this, and it feels like a um, hey, let's put on a show kind of quality to it that I yeah. think adds a bit of charm to it. Even though um, you know Ormsby's uh, director character in the film is a, is you know deliberately very obnoxious grading uh, character, and I think that <laughs> him, I think that character is a big part of why people check out. Plus the fact that it is so talky. Um, before any before any Sometimes, horror happens, yeah. but that gives it almost a feeling of a of a play in the woods. um So it's 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 odd because it 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 already shows Bob Clark had a sense of how to build atmosphere, even with a, a situation like this, which is like got a lot of campy comedy and lots of scenery chewing acting. Um, loud clothes uh before any horror really happens it already has a f- uh, a creepy feel to it in spite of the characters in a way um so the, but yeah and i definitely i definitely appreciate the score and uh
0: you know there's like you said there's some really sort of creepy graveyard ambience and obviously it's practical effects and a, a lot of it's I, but again like i don't know the acting isn't very strong and and I just don't get caught up in it, and you know, there's just I I feel like it's it's almost yeah too lo-fi or something. Like there's just something about it that you know doesn't doesn't gel with
1: me. Even though I could I could see why you know it led to other things. Well, I mean, if we're talking about it in relation to Death Dream, I mean it's it's and 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 it Death Dream. Death Dream was way, yeah. way, way less seen for many years versus Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things just because of how they were both distributed, and because um, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, you know, at the end of the day, was um, a zombie movie like in a more conventional way, even though the zombie action doesn't happen until very late in the game. But a lot of the a lot of the talent involved uh, would work on both films. I'm thinking not like just the. Um, you mentioned the music and Carl Car- Zitra, I think is how I, I might be mispronouncing the name. Um, but he's somebody that is a major contributor to all the early, uh, Bob Clark films that his, his soundtracks. I mean, especially when you get to things like death dream and black Christmas in terms of like creating, creating the mood, oh. um, ja- and Jack McGowan, That's the GP sure. also, um, the same person that also did death dream, uh, the, the cinematographer, um, like a lot of the, uh, you know, like a, a lot of the same crew, some a lot of the same cast appears in both um i, I it's it's an interesting trial run for like them making a horror film but they don't it doesn't have the same seriousness of intent as something like death dream but in terms of like them getting comfortable making films and like learning the language like it's it's a decent little effort i mean whatever problems it has i think that it um I get why it has an enduring cult following, but I also get why people like Danny, Danny Perry, who's been on my show, like finds it bewildering that there was ever a following for this movie. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, and maybe at that time, um, cause it, it comes in that, that those years between night and dawn, you know, that there was a hunger for zombie movies in the Romero vein that you know wasn't being uh, met yet. There's only like, you know, uh, stray examples throughout the seventies before Dawn of the Dead and Lucio Falci and things like that start, uh, you know, the zombie wave really kind of comes in like the early eighties. But, um, this is at the time of things like Messiah of Evil and, uh, let sleeping corpses lie. Like there's, there's a couple of zombie movies, but this one, I don't know, like it, it just has like a certain kind of graveyard ambiance that, uh, it's 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 a fun little romp if you're into it, and it, but it feels like very much like friends making something in the woods, and whether or not you find them obnoxious or not is probably gonna make a you know make a big difference.
2: Yeah, I, I found it. I
0: mostly found it obnoxious, but it's it's funny because like I think of Peter Jackson and like something like uh, his first film, Bad Taste. Uh, I find that to be really really obnoxious and. And kind of grading, but then suddenly you get to something like Dead Alive, and it feels like a huge. Yeah, well, you step think up. of
1: um, you think of Dark Star and John Carpenter, and then I mean, there's a certain sure. kind of like, like, like jokey student film kind of element maybe to these films that kind of goes away with the with the with the the follow up. Um, yeah, and as and as much
0: as I've, you know, I grew up loving A Christmas Story as a kid, my new favorite Bob Clark film that I hope everyone listening today will seek out is the one we're going to be reviewing here. Death dream. And, uh, I want to say I, I definitely heard about it, but you were the one who sort of insisted yeah. I see it at some point in time. And obviously I'm grateful for you sending me the Blu-ray, but, uh, I think, uh, the first time I saw it, it, it definitely like I, w- I was on, unexp- I was not, oof. I think it was around the time too, that I also saw Messiah of evil. And I was, it it was like two movies that just like really invaded my subconscious in this, in this unnerving way. Like there, there wasn't a lot of humor. It was just like, Whoa, this is really dark. I mean, this gets really heavy. This gets really like almost soap opera, you know, not in a bad way either with the, the family dynamics. And just,
1: and just so Uh, we say what, the the premise of, of of death dream i mean it's it's a story of like a uh, a soldier who's gone off to war and uh is killed in the opening scene of the film uh yeah Different actor, though. <laughs> but but then <laughs> um you know kind of uh, shades of the monkey's paw kind of idea but like the mother refuses mm-hmm. to uh give into the idea that he's dead and wishes him back to life um but he comes back as a uh you know as as a uh as a corpse a walking corpse but like but as a um kind of a symbol of rage of like uh the soldiers that uh you know coming back from vietnam uh coming back with addictions coming back with trauma um but done in a in a a fantastic kind of twilight zoney kind of treatment um I died for you, Doc. Why shouldn't you return yeah. the favor? Yeah, well, and and so, like, <laughs> I mean, political horror films. I mean, this is like you know a a typical in in that it's really foregrounding the politics of it. I mean, I, I um, I'm a big fan of The Last House and Left, and the original screenplay of that had a lot more overtly uh, Vietnam referencing material to that. I mean, there were other examples of post-Night post-night Living Dead kind of social commentary kind of interwoven into exploitation films like like those, but um, Death Dream would be one of the first to really take an anti-Vietnam stance in the horror genre. And also, um, you know, even just like, it, it not, not evoking any kind of counterculture um, either. Like, it, it's one thing to make an anti-Vietnam film that's, that's about sure. student protests, but it's another thing to like set it in small town America and have an anti-Vietnam theme. And this is like, you know, well before you have any of the films that like are, uh, war films critical of, of, of the, of the Vietnam war. Um, it is still kind of a going concern at the time, but it's, you know, I think that what I responded to, and this was a film that used to be quite hard to see. I had the VHS for it. Um, but it was a film that took me years to find it. Um, and it was originally, uh, well, it had many titles. I mean, um, you know i I think for dead of night was what i knew it to be when i first started looking for it and that's confusing because there was a um well a famous british uh horror anthology called dead of night but also a um a a made for television movie that dan curtis did in the 70s called dead of night so it was like you were constantly running into one of the (laughs) other looking for this uh you know pre-black christmas uh bob clark movie but um I think Death Dream might be what it first played uh, on television as. Um, I want to say it came out as. Did it come out as the Night Walk or the Night Andy Came Home? The Night yeah, Walker. I, I think. thought it was the Night Walk, but uh, but it, but it played under several titles. I think it, I don't know if it ever came out as the Veteran um, or Whispers was another title. Like it had several. Um, but yeah, it, regardless of what you call it, I think Death Dream is my personal favorite of those titles, but, um, but, sure. uh, yeah. And it, it, it reunites the, um, the couple from John Cassavetti's uh, faces, Lynn Carlin and, uh, John Marley, uh, who are both. Yeah. Oh,
0: so good. And, uh, a lot of people would also remember John Marley from the right. Godfather. And, uh, yeah, sort of coming, coming straight from that to something like this. uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure they were so <laughs> grateful that they could get those yeah, two. What well, I was going to say is like, I,
1: onboarding. what I responded to the first time I saw it was like the eeriness of it, but also the melancholy, because, you know, you talk about Messiah of evil. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a, a, a whole slew of, of, um, uh, horror films, independent horror films in the early seventies that, uh, ha- had like a, um, slightly kind of, uh, art, not not like arty, but like um, like maybe a European feel or influence, or like a little bit of like the Bergmany psychodrama thing, like Let's Get Jessica to Death, or things that felt like um, maybe more experimental, like Ganjan Hess, but like things that were like a little bit unorthodox, but dealing with horror uh, imagery, horror stories, and I think of Death Dream as being um, unusually. Heavy-hearted because it's dealing with like, like very sad real-life situation uh, as far as like you know the fate of soldiers in this war and uh, and what they come you know how how many soldiers uh, return as very broken, damaged people. Um, But yeah,
0: yeah, it has a lot to say about PTSD and what what soldiers and soldiers' families were experiencing. So you that alone gets you. Emotionally involved in what's going on, you know. Yes, it's a you know it's a creepy horror film as well, but you can also look at like he, like he, he yeah he's sort of like a vampire zombie vampire <sighs> <laughs> zombie kind of amalgam. But he, he they also sort of include the, the the need to you know numb away the pain and the trauma with drugs you know essentially with andy's need for blood you know to sort of keep him stable in that regard and i you know i think that was an early example of implementing that sort of uh metaphor yeah. if you will yeah i mean the the
1: the, the 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 drug the drug addict image you know in connection with vampirism is in a couple of films but so this one of the earlier examples i can think of um I mean, Tom Savini went from this to do Martin a couple of years later with George Romero, and that also has that same uh, idea. But it's it's you know, um, yeah. There's
0: something about those the tone of those films that just really like envelops you in in similar ways to like a like a like a David Lynch creepy. I don't you know. There's something unnerving, unsettling, even if it's not, you know, it's not your typical horror. It's not jump scares. It's not slasher. It's just, you know, and I, I don't like using the term like, Oh, it's all psychological, but there's just something uh, like unsettling, you know, about these worlds and these, t- and this particular tone in this era that uh, I, I respond to that I feel you know, like a connection towards, and it's similar to like when I, when I reviewed pulse on genre grinder, where it was like, this, this is just a mood piece that really gets to me, you know, that just, I I feel for what's going on, but I also just feel like, uh, you know, (laughs) like almost something, something like goosebumps, but not quite, you know, just something like there's something it's seeping into me as I'm watching it. And, uh, certainly Richard back is here. Uh, Holy crap, what a performance of detachment and explosive rage. And I I would say my favorite moment in all of Clark's movies involves a a pause uh, between between the family at that at that dinner table with and it culminates in a
1: slow smile. I know. I know the scene. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's I mean, I think that the opening of the film could be a perfect little short film, you know, just, you know. uh, Yeah, yeah,
0: that pullback. You yeah know, could um
1: final shot yeah no and people always whenever i show death room to people and that that's that always gets a big nervous laugh <laughs> um yeah. yeah no i i love
2: i think they're they're nervously yeah, laughing yeah yeah and it's
1: just yeah well it moment. has i mean it's very much like you know the supernatural comes to suburban small town america uh, and and um Yeah, no, and and I'm trying to think, like, how often suburbia was even a setting for those kinds of stories, because this is well before things like Halloween. Uh, And I'm trying to think what, because, you know, horror was so often tied to the gothic kind of imagery, you know, prior to... Or something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, well, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, kind of goes into that uh, fear of rural America, fear, fear of the South, fear of rednecks that kind of thing. Um, But as far as like zombies in suburbia or like, you know, menace to suburbia, I I don't know that it was as common before death dream. I mean, I'm I'm forgetting some big examples, but um, yeah, no, I, I think that um, a lot of what, I mean, more people would have seen black Christmas at this point, I think, but I think that a lot of the, the things that make that film work as far as the, the eerie dissonant, kind of uh music and sense of mood uh, th- these things are already kind of fully fleshed out in death dream and um it's been nice seeing it um f- you know in the wake of blue underground's reissue uh find more of a of a cult audience um but it's it's still uh you know uh, it deserves a wider recognition than it than it's had yeah
0: and uh I, I still can't believe the moment involving the dog, you know, and to to me, like going there is, is hard to watch. And yet you, you kind of, uh, you, it, it, you involve it, like it involves you in, in, a, in a really extreme way because not only is it he, what he's doing to the dog is really horrible, but, uh, the fact that he's doing it in front of kids, you know, and the trauma that he's causing them <laughs> in that moment is, 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 is terrifying. And certainly the, the father's sort of internalized uh, fear uh, of what his son has become and certainly how it plays out with his alcoholism later on. And, you know, it, it, there's like Cassavetti's like anger and lashing out, you know, even that like the poor daughter, you know, he, he, when he comes home drunk, it's just, you know, the father's a, yeah, a total well, asshole. I think about Alan
1: Ormsby yeah. uh, as the, as the, uh, the screenwriter of this and I thinking of coming from the theater and it feels like a, a play like a message heavy play uh, but it's also a creature feature. And I think that that's an interesting kind of blend because yeah. you know, it is, you know, he is somebody that is coming from that political theater uh, idea, you know, of, 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 you know, as far as, but, but he's also somebody that grew up with like, you know, a love of monster makeup and Lon Chaney movies. And so he's, he's kind of merging these two things and he's who I think of as much the author of that film of death dream and why it kind of stands apart from other Bob Clark movies. I think Alan Ormsby is a big part of why that film is a great film. Um, And, and And yet it's really beautifully well, it's well directed, you know, like I mentioned
0: the, the pullback shot there's, he's very graceful with his camera work. And I know we'll, We'll touch on black Christmas later, but it's just like, there are things about his style, So you know, I think a lot of it is subtle, but I just also think that he knows where to put the camera in the right place and certainly when to move the camera and not move the cam. Like he's just, I'm really surprised that even early on in his career, it's not choppy, you know, It's, it's like a lot of this just feels beautifully put together. Uh, not not just from a screenplay standpoint but as as a as a director yeah. early on whereas like children shouldn't play with dead things is kind of like a little bit more loose <laughs> to say the least uh i feel like here you know because of the material he took it more seriously uh he might have been more deliberate with his with yeah, his Yeah, well, And work. it
1: has a deliberate kind of pacing to it. I mean it is it is more about character and mood and melancholy than it is about uh yeah shocks but it you know, it has a it has a few of those um Yeah. And it 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 also has broad humor. I mean, this is something that we're going to have to talk about because, uh, you know, Bob Clark didn't go into comedies for quite a while. But, uh, you know, when he made... um, Tribute is the first one that has like a lot of overt comedy, the Jack Lemon film. But, you know, there were reviews of that that say like, well, Bob Clark is not a comedy director. So, this is and blah, blah, blah. And, like, he, I, I you get a sense that he was always pushing to work in, in lighter material. And so, even as far back as the horror films, there's a lot of comic downtime to them uh, to give. But, oh, but all of them like I mean, have that, yeah. you know, and Death Dream has it too. Maybe the most awkwardly like the um like the stuttering cook in the uh in the diner and um even some some of the 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 one liners with the uh you know the the girlfriend i mean it's 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 giving audiences some breathing room so that it's not so tense the entire time even something like deranged which isn't a bob clark directed film but has a very strong bob clark influence he edited it he produced it um yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think
0: I've always had a curiosity to watch it, uh, basically because of its place in history. And certainly, it came out, I believe, before it,
1: Texas Chainsaw. Right? I, I, it's around the same time. I was it was around it, the same time. I, I can't remember when it comes in relation. It it might be the same year, but I, I can't remember. It it, it it they they got compared a little bit, so. but I mean, Deranged yeah, for for those that don't know is is like a. um, a take on the Ed Gein story. I mean, it's more or less the it's it, at the time it was a more close closer to the facts take on the Ed Gein material than something like Psycho. Uh, but uh, Robert Blossoms plays the, plays the main character, and um, it's co directed by Jeff Gillen and Alan Ormsby, and Alan Ormsby wrote the screenplay. Bob Clark uh, produced it, but he wouldn't put his name on it. I don't think he takes editing credit either, but he was the editor as well um he just he, he, for him he felt he felt it was too um too too grim he didn't want to be associated with it that way um but you know i think he thought it was a, a fine effort uh, but it, that's a film that uh you know it has a little bit of outrageous violence like there's like a you know um there's like a uh, like a split open head with like brain eating or something that was like cut from some prints of it that i remember like uh you know buying a bootleg of it and like yeah. having the complete version that MGM had you know had put out on DVD but like but that's a film that um, a lot of the the technical credits like has another Carl Zitra uh, score has a um, Jack McGowan is the DP again oh, nice. um, it yeah it, it, it it's like definitely a cousin to things like Death Three and children Shouldn't play with dead things and Black Christmas but it's not um it it has like not it, it's not it's not quite as it- confident as black christmas or D- death dream but it has it has effective set pieces i mean there's there's one sequence in particular that really freaked out my roommate in college when we were watching it uh, as far as like a uh, a scene where he brings a, one, a woman back and uh, uh i don't i don't want to spoil it but it, it, but it's you know like a, a menacing scene yeah. but like wearing the skin masks and things that like uh you know do kind of evoke uh you know, later kind of Gene inspired things like Texas Chainsaw, or even Silence of the Lambs. You know, with the the skin mask. Yeah, but
0: th- things like this I th- probably the reason why I haven't seen it yet, too. It's like I don't, I don't know. S- sitting with something like Maniac, the original Maniac, I I don't feel as strongly as a lot of horror fans do about you know spending ninety minutes with somebody that uh, you know is basically just going around killing women and. I don't know if that's pleasant (laughs) at this point in time, but also just as I've gotten older, I've turned more into my dad and that I, 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 that's not what I, what I want to see necessarily. And it's not necessarily to take away from the artistry of horror films that do that. Cause uh, certainly I respect maniac more than I (laughs) appreciate. Yeah. I I
1: don't think deranged is quite as grim as maniac, but it's, I mean, because it's based on a real life, uh case. I mean, maybe it feels it feels like that. And yeah. Yeah, it has some scenes that are that are unpleasant, but it it also has a lot of black humor to it. Um and again that's the Bob Clark influence is that like he's not interested in a completely serious horror movie. Like he needs some some breaks in the uh in the suspense, you know. Yeah. And I think he
0: does that well. I definitely do. And certainly in in death dream. And I I think uh, it walks a fine line, especially when he's walking around with those glasses, you know, and like, uh, Oh man, he looks so cool, but it's, it's, it's also creepy at the same time. And, you know, his just like dead stare and or just him just like sitting in a rocking chair is effective, you know? And I think again, the sound design, is uh is really really great throughout, and we mentioned the score, and that's something that'll we'll carry on over into Black Christmas, where it's 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 atonal and it's it's very minimal, and it's sometimes just like scraping against piano strings uh, that works really well, you know. And and there's even a couple of jump scares here and there, but not like in a manipulative way. Uh, I think it just it seamlessly works, and then it ultimately becomes incredibly sad. Uh, the, the, the final moments, I'm like, I'm surprised at how moved I am by everything, because essentially this is just a, a a zombie movie in a way. But because of the mother's reaction to how things are, and obviously she's been in the wrong with how she's reacted to everything. But at the same time, you feel for her.
1: Yeah, well, that's uh, something with Bob so, Clark movies yeah, is that the... Um- who to root for who your protagonists are i mean a lot of in a lot of his films i'm noticing you know it's not uh it's not always like a group of characters that are your main characters who are the most oh, like obviously likable i mean children should not play with dead things obviously we we you know we, we talk about how those characters can be a little bit ob- obnoxious before they start getting killed off by zombies um yeah and you look at death dream and it's like you have a um You know, kind of like a uh, authoritarianish kind of dad, like a uh, a mother who's uh, stubborn and a little bit shrill, and and their rude zombie son. (laughs) You know, like these are your these are your characters. And then, like you know, you go look later on, and you have um, uh, whether or not people find the the high school students in the Porky's films likable or not is probably very subjective. But even things like From the Hip with Judd Nelson is like a uh, A yuppie lawyer (laughs) or um uh trying to think some other examples off the top of my head but like i mean you know he's not always going with the most uh obviously sympathetic uh protagonists and death dream i don't know i i I think it's it's tricky to have a horror film end on a on emotionally melancholy note is versus something like black christmas which you know, pushes ahead towards like nail biting suspense. Like it, Death Dream seems to have a, both. Yeah. Are, both are effective. That's the thing that I notice. is like because uh, it's important to
0: have a final note, and that's probably why I'm a little conflicted about the new Charlie Kaufman. I think I think your final note should be relatively not simple or clear. It just it it leaves you with a feeling that either makes you want to watch it again or it makes you emotional or it makes you want to think about it, you know, later in the day or, you know, however long. And it's just, uh, yeah, like b- both, of, both of those movies are, are kind of subtle. Well, this one, maybe not so much as <laughs> I guess subtle is not the right word. It's <laughs> like the, the, the thing that the, the mother says at the very end, I think kind of sums it all up in you know, a very political way. Uh, and you know him just lying down there in the grave, but at the same time, like you said, there's there's just an air of melancholy that I think really really hits home in a beautiful way that uh you know certainly not all horror films can achieve. Yeah,
1: no, I I I, I agree. And in, in you know in terms of like uh, how it was received at, at the time, I mean it really didn't play very widely, and I think it. Especially in the U.S., right? Like I think I think
0: it was successful in France, maybe. Like I felt like they got it, maybe the poli- more more towards the political angle, uh, and maybe it did a little bit better in Canada. But I think in the U.S., yeah, it, and it, it was seemed not to a success. Really
1: reach more people on television under the Death Dream title, um, but as Dead of Night in theaters, it really yeah, and and among other titles, it really kind of struggled. To, uh, to reach an audience. And I think when I saw it, well, no, I didn't get to see it when um, Maitland McDonough programmed a series at Lincoln center in the early two thousands. And that was, I think the first time it ever played theatrically in New York. I, I, if I, if I'm correct about that, like, and that was like a, uh, a retrospective of like mostly uh, overlooked horror films of the seventies uh, and early eighties. And um, that was part of the retrospective of Lamora, Child's Tale of the Supernatural, uh, Raw Meat, the Gary Sherman film. There was a couple of things that were interesting little sleepers Ooh. that uh, were a part of this retrospective. But Death Dream um, did play Lincoln Center as part of that uh, retrospective. And then um, really with, I think, the release of the uh, the DVD and then the Blu-ray through uh, Blue Underground is seems to be how most people are catching up with it. But, um, you know, the other horror film that he made around this time that also went out under more, more than one title and is much better known now uh, is, is black Christmas, which we should, we should at least uh, touch on that. Or, or did you want to jump to the other main thing? I don't know how you want to do it. Yeah.
2: Let's, let's, let's jump to our
0: next film of discussion okay. and then we'll circle back and talk about the two Christmas movies. Um, but, but one final note about death stream is that I want to say, keep, Eli Roth away from a remake. I keep reading that that was a possibility. I don't know if it still is, but I just, I mean, okay. I, strangely enough, I'm a fan of both of the black Christmas remakes. I'm weird. Uh, I, I've watched them all within the span of a couple months and I went, you know what? I well, like them all that's all there is to it, but I don't need, I don't, I don't know if I want to see a, a well, remake there, of there, death. I team, feel like there's already like been to-
1: something close to it in, uh, Joe Dante's homecoming for the masters of horror series. Right. Which I did see when it first aired and yeah,
0: I thought it was pretty great, but it's also like watch explicitly
1: it political. It has like a stand in for Ann Coulter as one of the characters. I mean, it, it is, it is <laughs> very unsubtly partisan uh, film, but, um, but, it, but it's the same principle as far as like the soldiers coming back as the walking dead but the punchline there uh is that they're coming back to vote bush out of office (laughs) um you know so it's a little different than (laughs) than um than death room it's the same idea you know as far as um you know the ravages of war and and like walking symbols of uh you know symbols of the war but we've got
0: I don't need to see Eli Roth do this, though. I really don't. I I liked a few of his movies early on, but at this point, I'm I don't know. I just I,
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't like that as much. I don't think you're <laughs> um, gonna see a remake from him. I, th- that was something that was rumored. I think even before Hostel. So uh, yeah, those are old oh, rumors. Geez. I don't think that that's something he's likely to to do now.
0: Well, now we have the most or at least for a while it was known as the most successful Canadian film ever made. Uh, I think it, but now for some reason, resident evil afterlife is the most successful one. I don't know how that happened. Um, but it's a little sex comedy called porkies. And, uh, I'm actually bummed. This is where his career went. Cause I think, I, I mean, you're right. Like he mentioned that he didn't have the passion for the horror genre outside of his successes in the seventies, but I think he could have remained more of like a Larry Cohen or Stuart Gordon if he wanted to. Well, without going in depth on the
1: films, I would say that just to bring us up to Porky's, uh, you know, he, he, he followed death dream with black Christmas, which also came out as silent night, evil night. And this was a success, not you know like a sleeper success, but not like a, a breakaway hit the way Halloween would be. Um, And then he moved towards the most self-consciously classy period of the career, which was Murder by Decree and, and Tribute. And Murder by Decree was this um, Sherlock Holmes uh, investigating the Jack the Ripper murders. And um, it has like a very kind of fancy cast. You know, you have people like James Mason and Christopher Plummer, Donald Sutherland, Gen- Genevieve Bujold, like very Gilgood, Yeah, Gilgood And yeah, um, everybody- you know, it's it's got his atmosphere, uh, like his sense of um, you know, like menace to it, but it's not quite a horror movie anymore. Like he's moving away from the genre already, and you know, uh, it's it's got. A...
0: And that seemed like the ideal transitionary yeah. film for him to get out because, like, it has elements of it. Certainly, with the with the murder scenes or the stalking point of view shots yeah, it, and stuff it, like it, it that. It retains
1: but... like some yeah. of the skills he developed. In the straight up horror movies, but it's already pushing towards something else. And then tribute is a um, an adaptation of a of a play. Um, hold on, it is um, Bernard Slade is the guy's name, but it's a, an adaptation of a play that Jack Lemmon had been doing already. And um, that if that that film uh, got uh, Golden Globe and Oscar nominations for Jack Lemmon, I think it won uh him uh, uh lemon won a, a genie the uh canadian equivalent to the oscars um won you know a, a, an acting award uh a genie for for lemon and yeah you know, it was a um you know a, a comedy drama and and a very likable film i guess maybe we'll talk about this a, you know, a little bit at the end but the um but that kind of gave him the clout to make what he wanted to make which was porky's and porky's was something that he had tr- he'd written it like um few years earlier um and i think in the wake of things like american graffiti yeah like you look at something like last picture show i mean there's a couple of things you could point to that are like um uh sexual coming of age in the 50s kind of films happening in the early 70s that porky's is a little bit like connected to those and it's also kind of um It's coming in the wake of Animal House, uh, which is a college sex comedy, but that same kind of outrageous body humor. Um, So I don't know why Porky's was hard for him to get made. I don't know if they found it too extreme or too tacky or or what. But it, it was actually harder for him to get that made. But that was a personal project that the clout of doing tribute helped him to get this thing made and he produced it himself. And, um, you would think with the success of something like animal house,
0: this wouldn't be hard to make. I I mean, i this, that's a college comedy through and through. And you had somebody like John Belushi and that, you know, remarkable cast and certainly John Landis behind it and everything. But, I don't know why it would be hard yeah. to get porkies but, made for but
1: him. So it, but so it did come out and it became, uh, it, in a way, it feels like uh, the Friday the 13th to Animal House is Halloween to me, as far as like you had the one in the 70s that kind of <laughs> laid down the template, and then you had the reinforcing hit that uh, made it a subgenre. And, you know, was even, you know, in some ways, like an even bigger success. And Porky's, you know, was like the Friday 13th of teen sex comedies. It wasn't the first. It wasn't the, um, even the one that made up all the rules. But I think that, you know, Porky's, I, I know Mike McPadden, who wrote a book called uh, Teen Movie Hell, you know, obviously talk, talks about like all the you know, Porky's and the films that come in the wake of it. I mean, you know, Porky's was... Um, you know, you could you could say Porky style comedy, and you knew exactly what that meant. It meant like a raunchy, uh, you know, sex farce kind of kind of comedy. Like, and so this is a film that like is very much full of pranks. That is very much full of. Uh, I, I don't even know that it has like a, an awful amount of nudity to it, all things considered, and it and and it actually has really a fair down, amount yeah. of male nudity to female nud- like the ratio is actually quite. Um, a lot more even than you might expect Um, maybe even more. Yeah. And pretty
0: much around this time, after this movie came out, if you were going to a drive-in and you were, you know, in high school around this time, you basically had two choices. You had, you either had the sex comedy (laughs) or the slasher film, (laughs) you know, and around this time, I, I, you know, I obviously I was too young, but I just heard that like, this is, you know, this just set off an entire spree of films that, uh, you know, eventually like I would come to know all about these films, like the films covered in Mike's book uh, through the cheater box that my dad had. And, you know, like at two in the morning on HBO, I'd come across something like Hot Dog, the movie or your hamburger, the motion picture or meatballs three, you know, and it was just really. Protagonists really yeah. just want to get laid. That's all. That's really, all that's that's the plot, you know. And I think something like uh, you know we talk about melancholy. Something like Last American Virgin at least has that, you know, final note of melancholy, which kind of you know is a is a surprise in well, the midst of the all that came before is that it. Does
1: it. have it does have a serious element to it as well, which is, I mean, yeah, in later terms of on like for sure. Yeah, dealing with prejudice because i mean it's 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 a film that mm-hmm. is set in the south like in florida in the 50s so it's definitely like a you know time when like you know the the uh, racism and 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 you know th- that's something that's tackled more explicitly in porky's to the next day but like the, the, the notion of like you know smuggling in some kind of progressive message stuff you know, to to swim against, you know, all of the uh, outrageous uh, embarrassment, you know, humor to it. Like, it does have, like, some kind of covert, uh, you know, political themes. And then it's also, it's interesting in that, like, a film like this would often get labeled misogynistic or anti-women, but the women in it are... Pretty, I think I, th- I want to say they're they're portrayed like as very much equals to the to the guys in this. They might not be the main characters, but um, they aren't just objects. They aren't just objects, objects. to be con- you know conquested by the guys. And it makes fun of the guys for like their immaturity about sex, and it I I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't like argue that it's like a, like a very progressive movie, like in secret, but it's not quite as. Uh, objectionable by contemporary standards as you might think going into it.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And that was definitely a surprise, but at the same time, I'm just not the biggest fan of this genre. I mean, maybe when I was younger, I found it more silly and fun, but I was never crazy about meatballs or animal house or even fast times, which is beloved, you know, and uh, you know, American pie, I just thought was dumb and you know, it had some funny moments or whatever, but you know, when I saw that and like the entire audience was like uproariously laughing, I I wasn't necessarily in the same boat in the same way I was with the hangover movies. I just kind of went, yeah, that was fine. I don't know. I don't get it. (laughs) It's like, there's some comedies that just don't work. And most of the comedy in Porky's is just not my scene. Uh, But I like, like I'd say the only time this kind of setup and scenario works for me is risky business. Because I find that to be more realistic, more cynical. You know, it is about being horny in high school, but there's a lot going on in terms of commentary about capitalism and all sorts of things, including you know what you're supposed to oh, do. Yeah, with yeah. Your yeah life. Risky in business is the and...
1: art film of the teen sex comedies. <laughs> like, I mean, right down to the tangerine yeah, dream, dream yeah. like kind of dreamy score and the and the yeah, the fact that it is talking about capitalism and yeah, it, it, it is a um, an outlier, even though it was like an, you know. Just as much a big hit as something like Porky's, but uh yeah, no, I I, I like um
0: you like I, Animal I, House. You know, I
1: I like it fine. I, and I, I this is not really a subgenre yeah. that I am like that crazy about either. I mean, Fast Times at High, I I absolutely love, but I, that feels like a different thing. I mean, the ones that have like a hint of melancholy, I think I respond to more, and like that one and Last American Virgin yeah. and Valley Girl. Um, are, are yeah, the I that I like from I this, like, this yeah. genre but like um you know I mean like when I was when I was younger you know and just wanted to see like the nudity of it like something like Animal House sure you know had that appeal to it uh, at, at this point in my life like you know I don't know that these films really are my sense of humor so much um but I don't I don't hate them and, you know I I think that there's an interest to them and I think something like Porky's yeah. I just thought you know in terms of his career like Porky's was like it had a cultural impact that is you know something that people may might not uh, remember so much because it's 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 never been a cool movie it's never been a critically well thought of movie so it's I don't know how often people discuss it even though it had like this uh, enormous uh commercial and cultural impact at the time to the horror of film critics and I think that Christmas story aside bob clark has always been a very critically reviled filmmaker from this point on in his career um, and he's often si- he's often yeah, singled out in the know, reviews as like in the way that like someone like michael bay isn't even like targeted in the reviews as like a bad problematic director but um yeah porky's really uh, offended everybody and it's funny if you look at porky's 2 i don't know if you had a chance to watch that but um no,
0: I I didn't get to the sequel. I mean, well, I, I hear it's a little I, better know, than it's, the original. It's not
1: like a radical departure, but what what it, Porky's Two does is that it seems to uh, hear the criticisms of Porky's and like um, it's it's. I, I know Mike made this connection. I thought of it also that the, the um, Magnum Force in relation to Dirty Harry, like it's something that is. You know, aware of the criticisms uh, and uh, the thing with Porky's too is that it it takes the uh, prejudice angle further. Um, the p- premise of Porky's too um, is that they're um, they're going to put on a uh, a Shakespeare play. They're going to perform like uh, and, and with a, uh, a Native American uh, lead uh, playing Romeo and a, Romeo and Juliet and um Mm. first they um they're targeted Mm. by a uh you know a a preacher like uh who's like saying how smutty shakespeare is and then it ties in the clan who are uh upset that there's going to be this um interracial romantic element to it and so they go to a politician who's corrupt and trying to sleep with their 17 year old, you know, uh, the girl from the, uh, you, know, fr- from, you know, from the gang from Porky's, you know, like the, like, so you have corrupt politicians, you have uh, corrupt uh, <laughs> clergy, you know, a religious figure, and you have racists, you have the Klan. And so the yeah. prank loving, you know, uh, gang from Porky's, like, these are the new targets for their. Uh, their their rude kind of uh antics and so it's rather than like porky and like pulling apart this kind of rednecks you know uh bordello um they're they're going after their you know the, the term punching up like they're going after targets that that a liberal audience would be like yeah go after you know corrupt politicians or go after the clans you know yeah. racist you know go after these people and so yeah. it's there's a little more catharsis then when you when you when you get
0: to, when you watch something like that cuz i always i always cheer that on you know deep down when it comes to like vengeance and even here with the original i i do like the elaborate takedown you know towards the end like the the lengths that they go to to an exact vengeance on on porky <laughs> it's quite entertaining like i f- i find that way more interesting than you know the sexual frustration angle or you know, the, the voyeuristic shower scene and stuff like that. Like I, f- I found that that's, that's more my scene when it comes to like, let's get revenge on the bad guys <laughs> and do it in a fun way and then yeah. watch what happens. Yeah. And so, know?
1: I mean, it, it is, and not that critics gave Porky's to any kind of pass. I'm pretty sure it got all bad reviews, but it, you know, it, it, it was, it was making an effort to, uh, make some political points, but still, you know, be a Porky's too, you know, like still have like, you know, nu- like gratuitous nudity and like, you know, the same kind of like embarrassment comedy thing where like it's still, it's still trying to hit those notes, but it's the targets, you know, feel more self-consciously righteous. And may, that may or may not be also the influence of Alan Ormsby comes back into the fold to co-write that one. Um, yeah. And it even has oh, like really? a, uh, oh a graveyard type scene and a guy in zombie makeup, you know, that's a, like very children shouldn't play with dead things ish kind of uh, variation on the, um, the cherry forever scene in the first film. Like as far as like a scene where like, they think they're going to get laid, but it's really just to scare them, you know, that kind of same kind of joke, um, you know, but done in a cemetery with zombie makeup. So it is, it, you know, a little bit like the beginning of uh, children shouldn't play with dead things. Um, so yeah, I, you know, the Porky's movie's, I mean it might be I don't want to yeah, like yeah, if, sounds you don't, fun. if you're not like if you're kind of like lukewarm on Porky's I don't want to like make Porky's 2 sound like well this is you know the evil dead 2 or like it's not like it doesn't reinvent anything like it's it's you know it's safely in like alongside it um, Porky's revenge is not is not is a, is a different story that's that's not Bob Clark and that's you know uh, a, a few people have remarked that just you know these, these high schoolers are getting a little bit a little bit old looking <laughs> Um.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, let's face it. I, I, I like watching dudes get humiliated for being like, so sex obsessed, you know, like, cause I mean, I understand the motivation. I, I, I was a teenager. I understand like, you know, being in that frame of mind, but I Mm -hmm. also, I appreciate the fact that you're right. Like, you know, even just the, 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 the famous shower of voyeurism scene, culminates in yeah. a tug of war with the gym teacher <laughs> like i mean you know and that's that's funny you know to, to me it's not like it's not as creepy as i thought because even the girls are laughing rather yeah, than being terrified you know
1: they're just like the guys like and that's a thing that i think even like um yeah like like something like animal house you don't really get the sense that there's a, a female equivalent to the 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 delta fraternity guys um whereas in Porky's, even though those those characters are not really given as much attention in terms of screen time you get a sense that they they like sex just as much they like pranks just as much they're you know they're not um they're they're, they're equals and and so i don't know i mean it, it's again i don't want to overstate the progressive element of it but it is it is um it's, it's, it's aged well enough, you know, in, in, in by contemporary standards. I mean, I, you know, uh, you could, you could. It's more interesting than I thought. Like
0: I thought when we've initially decided on like this being the other movie, as opposed to maybe black Christmas, I just kind of went, I don't know if this, and even Patrick commented on that he was like, what are you going to find interesting about porkies? You know? And I think there are interesting things about it, including what we've mentioned. And certainly it, 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 it is a movie that's, kind of uh, more obsessed with the, with the, with male genitals because like they're, they're really self-conscious about it. And certainly like they get exposed in humiliating ways uh, early on with the, with with the uh, cherry, cherry forever. Cherry. What, what, what's her name again? Yeah. Cherry forever. That, that whole sequence is like, Oh, but I mean, like I do think it has a heart too, you know, like, like we mentioned, it's a it's it's a movie that punishes mm-hmm. intolerance and bigotry, uh, and you know I I, I find I, I may not find it funny at, throughout, but like I said like I said I, I saw the American graffiti quality that Bob Clark was trying to infuse in this, but you know in, in vast contrast I gotta say though that I just never I've never liked Kim Cattrall in anything. I found her orgasm scene to be insufferable. I just couldn't.
1: I really like her a lot in tribute, the film that they made together before this. So it reminds me of, of of how Bogdanovich used Colleen Camp in They All Laughed and that it's like a good vehicle for this person that had, you know, maybe been cast just for, you know, uh, being pretty as like someone that has like real comic timing and, um, and, and, and given a chance to be like funnier than anyone else in the scenes. Whereas the guy get has to play more like the straight man part in the in the in the in the dynamic, um, Porky's is not quite as you know g- g- gives her much to do. And I but like according to Bob Clark, that actually was based on a real thing that he remembered there was actually like a porky's hideaway in florida when he was growing up then there was a a, there was a guy named porky that you know ran it and uh so i some some of the um and 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 they never really could get permission so bob clark was always kind of quick to say oh there's no real connection it's a coincidence a lot of things are called porky's um but I, I don't know how many stories were kind of um, based on real life things, you know, um, that he experienced, but, um, or, or that his friends experienced and he heard about him. But yeah, that, that, that personal quality to it for something. That's something I always found interesting is that like, you know, his most personal film in some ways is the most crassly commercial film. And, you know, that's just, it's, it's kind of like if Sean Cunningham, no one would let him make Friday Thirteenth, but he had the story to tell, and so he he finally got a chance to tell his personal story, and it just happened to be this critically reviled, commercially uh, lucrative franchise thing that kind of kickstarted a whole subgenre. Um, I think, yeah, that's that's remarkable,
0: and I feel bad for Siskel and Ebert because all they all you had at that point is all right. We know the slasher movies are successful and cheap to make. We know that sex comedies are cheap and successful too. So let's just keep churning those out. Yeah. And well, that, the, the, and there's value in both of them. I, I you know, that's the thing is like, I almost thought like, okay, I'm just going to completely dismiss Porky's as you know, in similarly the way that they did, but I found merit. I found value. <laughs> I, I, there are things about it that I think make it worth your time. Even though I don't think in the end
1: it's like, you know, top tier Clark for me. Yeah, I, I I I get their objection, but I also think they sound a little bit... Um,
0: Old man, get off my lawn.
1: Kind of. Well, <laughs> but here's the thing. So Porky's is not aimed at Siskel and Ebert. It's aimed at 13-year-old boys. <laughs> you know, like it is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, you know, so that's the thing. When we talk about Bob Clark's career going forward a lot of these are aimed at much younger viewers. And so it's, it's um, even a Christmas story. I mean, in the, you know, they are, they're seldom aimed at an adult audience again. Like, I mean, they're, they're exceptions, but for the most part, he's moving towards family friendly, broad comedy, sentimentality, um, moving, you know, very much away from the things that he was doing in the 1970s whether it be the horror films or like the classier you know uh, more adult fare like Murder by Decree or Tribute like he's not interested in that being the career he's interested in doing uh, you know films maybe he wanted more of an audience you know and I I respect him for that. Yeah, well, even the violence was something he was not comfortable with, you know, which is why he took his name off Deranged, and you know, the violence in something like Black Christmas is is way more suggested than it is depicted. Um, but even that, like, it's not what really what he wanted to do. He later, um, he, the only other time he returned to the horror genre was he produced. Uh, I don't think he's credited on the final film, but uh, Popcorn. Um, which Alan Orm? Oh man, Alan Ormsby yeah. was the original director of that. I don't know how well you remember Popcorn, but that has um like that um almost matinee style, like fake B movies that they're watching. But then there's a killer killing people in the theater. Um, but that I should watch that again because I remember being mixed on it
0: when I first saw it, and I think I don't think it's entirely successful. But it, it isn't. I think there are, again there are things about it that are interesting.
1: Yeah, there are. I mean it it. It's it's got a mixed parentage because Alan Ormsby got fired off of it and they recast the lead actress with Jill Sholin from Stepfather. Um but that's a case where uh Bob Clark and Alan Ormsby were returning to the horror genre for the first time since since well, I think the last time Ormsby was involved in a horror was he wrote the first uh version of um like the first draft of what became Paul Schrader's uh cat people remake. But they had um They had otherwise stayed away from horror until popcorn, and it was not a happy experience for anybody. um, That's too bad, unfortunately. But Bob Clark, yeah, yeah, was you know when they wanted him to direct popcorn, and he was like, "No, I'm done with horror." Black Christmas was the last one he wanted to do, uh, which is a good one to go out on if you're you know gonna leave the genre behind. It's like leave it with a major a major work. But um, yeah, yeah, and I I know that he wanted to make a
0: Christmas story for a long time but just couldn't get support from the studio. And once he had the success with Porky's, the studio was like, okay, you, you want to do a Christmas story? You got to do a sequel to Porky's. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So he sort of agreed to that because now he finally could get made what he wanted to make. And this was a true passion project. So if anything, Porky's is responsible for a holiday classic, you know, and uh, I returned to it, time and time again, mainly just because it is nostalgia. It's like comfort food at this point. It's like, and I do put it on, you know, around the Christmas holiday season It's in the background, I don't always engage with it the way I used to. Uh, But it's one of those that I I think our family just watched so regularly around the holidays that I, I just sort of grew to love and appreciate everything about it, Uh, including, you know, going back and sort of reading the work of Gene Shepard, um, because this is based on a story that he wrote called, uh, I think it was in a book called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and so, as someone who loved the you know, this and the Wonder Years, uh, you know, it's like the both of them sort of, I think, you know, I don't think. That the Wonder Years would have existed without a Christmas Story, I really you don't. Know, I think yeah, I never, I never made that
1: connection. But you're absolutely right because of the the narration.
0: Yeah, yeah, and certainly just the you know the nostalgic quality, the the growing up in the 50s, and uh, I, I I keep reading that they call this town Homan, Indiana, but I could have sworn it's always been Hammond, Indiana. That that's what Gene Shepard says in a Christmas Story, but maybe I'm just mishearing it. They all like some of the things I read about it. People were just saying, like, oh, it's a fictional town called in Indiana. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've always associated it as Hammond, Indiana, which is a small town that I grew up nearby. Um, obviously, it wasn't shot there, I think it was actually shot in Ohio, maybe Cleveland. I think Cleveland, yeah, but uh, it th- there's a reason why it's a classic, there's a lot of charm to it. I think Derek McGavin is one of the most memorable fathers in movie history in this. I think he's phenomenal in it. I, I, I also really love Melinda Dillon and everything. Uh, so, you know, it, I can, I can understand like, you know, if you're coming at this not as like a family classic that you've seen over and over and over again, maybe it doesn't, you know, have that same place in your heart, but, uh, for me it does. And yet at the same time, the most recent time I've seen it, the very end of the film, I actually hate. which like, I I can't stand them going to that Chinese restaurant and them laughing at the way they're singing. Like now people find that offensive and I, I'm kind of on board with that. I mean, it's supposed to be funny, but I just, I think that they could have just completely cut that scene and it would have been a much stronger ending. Like, I know that the fact that like, okay, they don't have their Turkey now, so they have to go out to eat somewhere, but I don't know. I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. It's like, look at the way their accents are. Look at how funny they
2: sing. I don't know. Yeah, well,
1: I was thinking that watching again this week and um, how something like Porky's would be thought of as being, you know, beyond the pale, politically incorrect. But Christmas Story is never criticized. And, And I feel like the way race is handled in Christmas Story is probably a little bit. Uh, you know, more eyebrow raising, I guess, in that in in that scene, anyway. But I di- Yeah, and don't get me started the portrayal of the
0: bumpuses in the sequel. Oh, sure.
1: Yeah. Well, Horrible. I mean, Christmas Story for me, um, I I is one of those films like Monty Python My, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where a lot of gags were spoiled for me on the playground at school. So by the time I actually caught up with <laughs> the film, I felt like I'd already heard you know, you'll shoot your eye out and all that, you know, so many times that it, you know, kind of muted all of the impact of them. Um, and it's a film that I've seen it maybe five or six times now, uh, but it's never been like a holiday uh, s- staple for me, the way that it is for so many people. Um you know, for me, I'm like it's a wonderful life is a film that like is a, is also a holiday staple for a lot of people, and that's what I've seen so many times that I, you know, I can skip it because I know it by heart. Um, but Christmas story is is one that when I watch it, I keep I, I, I like it. Like I, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be um, you know uh, uh, criticizing of that film, but um, it it's not it's not a film that it has ever really been close to my heart it's just one i can appreciate like oh, this is this is perfectly pleasant i like the look of it the you know the certain scenes i get why they work like i i can see how this would make a lot of people very happy but i don't i it, it kind of leaves me you know nodding my head like yep there it is but i don't i don't it, it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't make me laugh and uh i don't find it that like uh moving <laughs> i just i find it more charming yeah in heartwarming you know i mean it's sweet i like I christmas guess. movies i like you know i like small town americana kind of movies like I, I i like it fine when it's on but i don't i don't latch on to it the way it's the, it's humongous cult following has latched onto it if that makes any sense mm-hmm. like it it's fine like i i i i get it i appreciate it i get why people see it as the heartwarming outlier to this very crude, cynical career of Bob Clark. Like I get why it's confounding to the Leonard Maltons and Roger Eberts of the world that, that Bob Clark would go from porkies to this. Um, and if it's on, I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, not unhappy about it, but it is not. Um, I think, think something about Gene Shepard's narration. He always sounds like somebody that <laughs> is about to laugh at his own joke <laughs> I think
0: he does. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I think he does in this movie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like he, he sounds like an older relative that has a halfway funny story that to tell you, but they think it's really funny. And, uh, you know, it, so it always kind of, you know, I have to settle into that, to that rhythm when I watch it. Um, I like the look of it. I like, again, like the cast is perfect in it. Melinda Dillon is, is great. Like, you know, I, 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 I get it. Uh, but I'm. I. It's not one of my favorites of his. I can understand
0: that too. At the same time, it's like, you know, the, does it stand out in the way that I feel his horror films did? I don't think so. But it's also, it's it's one that's like a part of the. <laughs> it's a part of the the, the culture. And yeah. Like to the point where there's you know museums are dedicated to the film. Yeah. And like there are things about it that are timeless for for a lot of reasons. You know. And uh, yeah. I, very quotable. I mean,
1: Darren McGavin's quotable throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of impervious to any criticism at this point. Anyway, I, I think at this point it kind of overtakes "It's a Wonderful Life" or "Miracle on 34th Street" or <clears throat> any uh, other uh, holiday perennial. Like it is, it is America's Christmas movie now. I mean, that's. I I, I think at this point it is the most beloved holiday film. Um, but also, Black Christmas is beloved, too. Yeah. That's one I'm more likely to watch in December. <laughs> but, you know... I- yeah, I, 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 I will
0: now. I mean, I think I've always liked Black Christmas, but I the, the most recent viewing, I was like, oh, crap, I think I love this movie now. Yeah. Uh, it took a while, but I I think that... It's because I always felt like it lived in the shadow of Halloween, and I grew up seeing Halloween dozens of times mm-hmm. before even getting around to Black Christmas, and I just, like... Went Well, it's no Halloween, but (laughs) clearly I know the order, you know, in which these films came out. And it's certainly funny to hear like Bob Clark say, oh, no, no,
1: no, 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 no. John Carpenter didn't steal
0: my idea or anything,
1: you know? Yeah, well, the thing with, I mean, as a side note like everybody seems to take credit for halloween <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean the producer takes credit for it carpenter takes credit for it bob clark takes credit for it a little bit like every like you know th- th- that's that's the thing with like a a, a popular game changer film like halloween is like yeah, everybody wants to say well you know good thing i thought of this or good thing i thought of that um black christmas the first time i saw it i think was on vhs and i knew from reading about it that people would say that you know halloween is good but it's borrowing a lot from black christmas and so that's a pretty tall order and so the first time i saw it as a teenager i was a little bit underwhelmed because halloween it is not but you know going back to it i think in college is when i started really kind of rewatching black christmas a lot and it, it i think it's it holds its own pretty well against most 70s horror movies to my mind i think you could put it in the same conversation as halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you know, any of the uh, more popular celebrated franchise launching uh, horror movies of that, of that period. I think that it's scary still. I think that when I show it to people, when I show it to people that are pretty jaded, uh horror movie people, like that's one of the only films from the seventies that really scares people the way, whatever the contemporary film of the moment is like, and it's, it's got effective jump scares it's got effective dread building and it takes all the things that work in death dream in that respect but it it leaves out the melancholy but it, it also it, it allows for complicated uh young people to be at the center of it like they they aren't just um a virgin and the slutty friends kind of kind of template that you know Halloween and Friday 13th. Oh no! Yeah, these are real. These are like to more me, like. complicated people, and uh, it's a, it's a brilliant ensemble. Uh, you know, everybody is 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 great in it. I mean, Olivia Hussey. Like these are not um, just drive-in movie. Um, you know starlets that you know show up for a film or two and then they're they're out of the business i mean these are you know these are uh people like margot kidder that have comic timing that have like a way to really bring uh even like the, the supporting characters uh to life in a real memorable way i th- yeah uh, andrea
0: martin who i just associate with being a comedian you know mm-hmm. through and through thanks to sctv is actually really good uh, yeah and uh crazy Crazy Mrs. Mac, yeah, <laughs> with hiding booze and toilets. and well, stuff. Well, it's that
1: broad comedy thing, you know, and like, yeah, I mean, that's sure. that's you know, again, the the Bob Clark thing is like, you know, wanting to like that's something you don't find in Halloween. Like Halloween plays it very straight, um, you know. This this yeah, or that laughing cop uh, oh. <laughs> when
0: John Saxon is like uh, finding Bellatio, out about uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that whole. <laughs> That cop is just like, oh my gosh! There's always got to be bumbling cops, just like in Last House on the Left. I guess. Oh well.
1: No. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, that's probably one of the first of many cops that John Saxon played. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even know if like his casting in Nightmare Elm Street is a reference to Black Christmas, but um, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, but I mean, this is a thing where like the, um, like the phone calls, like you know, are. I mean, for me, they work, and they work in a way that's like it's just eerie and odd it's it's it that's a hard thing to pull off because it's one thing to have like effective jump scares but to have something linger in a scary way um i mean for me those those moments work and and the um like the way that the killer imitates the cat when the first girl is murdered uh from the closet it's such a spooky little uh moment that um I don't know. It, it doesn't get over familiar for me. And it has all of the atmosphere, um, uh, that you want in a horror movie, as far as like, uh, just like you, you get a sense of the cold, um, like a sense of the, just how, uh, unpleasant the, the environment is. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's such an effective film that I, at this point I think it is thought of as a, a classic. I mean, I, I know that, um, both of the two uh, other black Christmas movies are controversial and uh, in their own way. Um, <laughs> but in black Christmas, the original, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's, yeah, it, it's grown up about itself as it's, even compared to Halloween. I think, you know, it's like tackling things of like abortion. It's tackling, you know. Um,
0: yeah. Which is something people weren't prepared for. I think at the time. Yeah. No, no. It was, yeah, it was it was to, to include that here it was very audacious and certainly I, I you know, watching it now too, I I, I thought of like, well when, when was the steady cam introduced? And it wasn't until like a couple years after this movie. And I was like, some of the shots here are so graceful, you know, and just like like the way the way it's filmed, I'm guessing it must be, you know, on a dolly track or something, but also just the early killer point of view shots I was like well
1: yeah. I could see why Carper was influenced a little yeah, bit. Reginald Morris was the cool. DP on this yeah. one. Reginald Morris was the um, the DP on a lot of Bob Clark movies but this is a um this is a new cameraman. Like Jack McGowan shot all the early ones and then Reginald Morris is the guy that would shoot Murder by Decree and uh Porky's Christmas Story. Um you know uh and this was their first collaboration and yeah the camera work you can tell is an influence on what people like john carpenter would would uh appropriate and and maybe do with you know in a different style i mean like you know dean cundy's work in halloween is is uh pretty striking in its own right it's not it's not a copy i mean but it is you know but they uh yeah they they pick up on things that bob clark does in this and obviously um the killer is in the house kind of things like when a stranger calls i mean i i i know that um you know there's there's you know i think by the time you get to things like scream it's it's almost kind of overkill but like you know at the time that was a really new uh gimmick you know for a for a teen slasher movie and this is early enough on that there's really not that many prior sl- i mean sometimes they they call pre-halloween slasher movies proto slashers but i don't it is a slasher movie i don't know but it's, it's 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 the exact same yeah. kind of uh, effective body count movie is what comes in the wake of Halloween and Friday Thirteenth. Um, it's one, it's still one of the best. It's ones. Definitely one of the best. It's one of the best directed slasher films of the seventies. And uh,
0: I, I, I will say, there's like a bit, of, a bit of a lull. Surprisingly, when we first, like the first, fr- the the time between the first victim and the next one, there's a lot of time spent waiting. And I don't, I don't mind that actually because I like spending time with all these people.
1: Yeah. But it's yeah. They, I mean, they take time to develop the characters. They they retain the mood, and you know, you know that the. I don't know if you always know that the killer is in the house, but it's it's a uh, yeah. No, I I think I mean Black Christmas, you know, is one of my favorite horror movies. I think it's hard for me to pick whether that or Death Dream is his best horror film. Um, but you know, I can see the argument for both. But back to back, it's like. You know, if Bob Clark had stayed in that in in that in that genre, he could have been famous for that. I mean, I I, it's one of the great what ifs. You know, if he had had um a desire to make more horror films, it just wasn't really. It was just a means to an end to move forward in a in in profession. Um, and a lot of horror movie directors uh, like George Romero and Wes Craven didn't want to get stuck in that genre, but that's what people would you know, pay them to do. Um, I, you know, so you don't know if, um, you know, uh, if Bob Clark had not really had an opportunity to break out with murder by decree and then tribute, if he would have made more of these, I, I don't know, but um, you know, we're lucky to have, I'm, I'm glad yeah. that he did. I'm glad that he made these, these two back to back. And
0: I, I certainly found, you know, a lot to appreciate And you can certainly bring up another title, Uh, but like I found, I found elements of both breaking point and murder by decree to be really strong. Uh, I, I I don't think they're entirely successful. I don't think there are movies that are stone cold classics, at least, you know, I, 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 but I mean, again, I'm not that, I'm not as huge into the Sherlock Holmes mythology. I've never watched the Sherlock show that everybody raves Mm -hmm. about. You know, and I think there are things I'm sure I would appreciate
1: about it more, but I, I certainly enjoyed myself with both of those other two oh, movies. Yeah. I, I forgot um, I forgot okay. to mention Breaking Point, because I, I, that was the nicest surprise, because that was one that had kind of slipped by me until this year. And um, yeah, I agree with you that it's not perfect. I think it kind of... Um, kind of just runs like without it, it it kind of doesn't really know how to end itself. Like, you know, the pacing is way off, I think in that one, but but, but uh, as a, um, but as a death wish, uh, knockoff, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. You know, it it, it has some of the atmosphere that Bob Clark picked up on the horror movies. It's the, that's actually the first one I'd said it was murdered by decree, but that's actually the first one that's like break from horror. And, um, yeah, it's a it's a solid little D movie. I I I I I like it a lot for what it is. I, I I wish it was easier for people to see it now. I think the DVD has been out of print for a little while. I don't know if there's any plans to bring it to Blu-ray, um, but it's a nice surprise if you. They, they probably they probably should for the final kill.
0: <laughs> it's very memorable. Final kill, yeah. and I was like, oh man, he's going for it here. That's pretty that's pretty cool. And the fact that it blows up like a car would when it goes over a cliff, like that's pretty awesome. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's um I think that's the first collaboration with Roger Swaybill, who wrote Porkies with him later on. Um nice. so it's like it's that's the first Yeah, that's that's I don't know if that's like his red eye, <laughs> you know, as far as like that kind of tentative dip <laughs> in the in the in the pool of like outside the the horror genre proper, but um yeah, no, it's it's an, it's a, it's like if you get a chance to see it and like um yeah, like that that Charles Bronson kind of vigilante justice kind of thing. It's it's definitely uh, a a nice uh hidden gem uh in the filmography of Bob Clark. I mean, there's a lot of films that are not so gem like. Uh but that's that was the nice surprise for me.
0: Yeah, and and Murdered by Decree is good too. Uh, I I would say that how things play out, I wasn't as excited about. And certainly when you think of something that's far more playful and involves time travel, like time after time, you know, which, which goes after Jack the Ripper. I, uh, I definitely prefer that. Me too.
1: I think, I think, I think murder by decree. It's, it feels too long. (laughs) It definitely Um, does. Yeah. It's, I mean, the cast is great. It looks great. It has scenes that are fantastic. It's easy to see why people think that's a great film, but I think it's it's a little plotting. Um, but but mm-hmm. it's still it's still decent. But it, it it it's 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 a nice try. And I think you know, I think it's kind of like Match Point with Woody Allen. Like it's like people because they hear all those English accents, <laughs> they think it feels like a lot classier just by default. Um, but it's, it's self-consciously classy. I don't think Bob Clark really, you know, that he was proudly lowbrow, you know, in so much of his work that it's, it feels out of step with everything. And I don't know if it was just a calculated move to get out of making, you know, slasher and zombie type movies, which, you know, it worked. But, um, you know, and it was, a, you know, it was a well thought of film, like critics were kind to it. it, you know, did well at the genies, you know, with the uh, c- the Canadian Oscars, like it, it succeeded in getting him out of exploitation, like uh, horror, but um, it's fine. I, I I don't, I don't want to kind of downplay, but it isn't a, um, you know, it isn't, I wouldn't well, say it's a great film. I, I yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was great either,
0: I but I also don't. I don't know why, like Sherlock Holmes as a character is never really, what was the other, oh, um, I must have, it was uh, Billy Wilder, yeah, that I watched another Sherlock oh, Holmes yeah, movie. Yeah, and it was just kind of the same thing with that one, I was like, okay, I like a good mystery, but for some reason, I maybe there's just a disconnect with me and Sherlock Holmes and James Bond, I don't know why, yeah, it's just... I, Neither of them never really like excited me as to follow them along on this. I like story, some of those but... Basil
1: Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies, and um, actually, I like that George C. Scott Joanne uh, Woodward comedy. They might be giants that um, I should yeah, see. That. That's yeah, that's a fun yeah. little movie. But I mean, in general, yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on the like Sherlock Holmes mysteries are not. Yeah, they're fine, but they're not really my forte either. But and and I agree with that Time after time is like a uh, a wonderful little uh companion maybe to put it like that they it would make an interesting kind of contrast double bill you know with murder by decree um that's a lot more fun and that, yeah. and, a, and a great use of malcolm mcdowell um absolutely yeah and
0: uh once we go once we move forward a little bit though i mean well i the the the, the two bob clark movies i've seen you know from the period that is definitely subpar compared to his work in the 70s were uh, loose cannons, and it runs in the family. And I, um, I can't, I can't even begin to describe my hate of loose cannons. I've done it already. I don't want to do
2: it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, loose cannons is pretty I, dire. Um, but I, but I would yeah. say just t- to get to the contemporary, uh, well, the the more recent films from Bob Clark. But before we get there, I would say that uh, tribute is one of my favorites of his, and that's a film that is okay. very, no, it's but very okay, hard yeah. to, to, um. To see currently, I don't really know why it had a VHS release and then it kind of just vanished. I don't know if it's a rights thing or an elements thing or what. But um, that's a Jack Lemon vehicle. Um, that's the best use of Kim Cattrall of all the Bob Clark movies because they did a couple of films together. Um, Robbie Benson, you know, it's an odd performance. Like it, it mostly works, but it's, um, but it's you know one of those father son, uh, you know, getting. Yeah, like like it's like father is this hammy extrovert. Uh, the son is this, uh, awkward introvert. And like they have a strange relationship. Um, it's a little schmaltzy in places, but it's also kind of moving and funny and a great, um, showcase for Jack Lemon as far as like somebody that like can hit notes of like, uh, quippy verbal comedy, but also, um, you know the kind of pathos that he taps into in something like Glen Gary, Glen Ross, or something like that. Like it's all, it's all available to him at that point of his career. And um, yeah, it's it's a little bit of an out, like an, an outlier on Bob Clark's resume because it has some of the, uh, I don't, I don't want to say like atmospheric, but like it, it has some of the feel of like his, you know, thrillers in terms of the the look and pace of it. Like it's not quite hmm. as. Um, bright and breezy as the uh the post porkies bob clark movies but it's i don't know again it's like it's 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 self-consciously a little classier and like almost evoking old hollywood in in a way because of because of lemon like it feels like you know uh, but it's also rooted in theater and 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 plays and like uh i don't know it's funny that we bring up the kaufman thing because they both end similarly as far as like a um kind of like a, uh, like a tribute on stage kind of climax. (laughs) Um, I didn't think of that until just now, but like, but it's, it's again, like breaking point, like there's hidden gems on the resume with Bob Clark that, um, are weirdly less talked about than baby geniuses or you know things.
0: Maybe you can get uh, maybe you can get tribute out on like uh, Warner Archives or Kino Lorber or something.
1: I don't know. Uh, Kino Lorber just put out Murder <laughs> by Decree, and they mention Breaking Point and tribute in you know Bob Clark in the parentheses. They mention those films along with you know the obvious hits, and so I don't know if they ever had plans to uh, revisit those films, but somebody should because they are. Um, evidence that there was more to bob clark than just the horror films and Porky's and christmas story because i think that those films tend to overshadow so much else um once you get past Porky's and christmas story then it becomes kind of a rocky road i mean no pun intended because rocky you know you know balboa you know rhinestone um you know that's that's (laughs) the film that i think really made him um like critics didn't care for Porky's, but or Porky's too. But I think with Rhinestone on, like the reviews start calling Bob Clark out specifically as like a bad director, and you know he was he was he was a replacement director on that. But that was a thing. That's that great. was a thing where Stallone was kind of rewriting the script, and it was. Um, and it was Phil, uh, Phil, one of the original screen, screenwriters and Robinson who you know people know oh. from Field of Dreams and Sneakers and God do I love wrote, Sneakers. And so he wrote cool. All of Me the uh, Lily Tomlin Steve Martin movie. Um oh, that's yeah, a good one. but he and he you know was mortified with the final result. And Rhinestone is an awkward film. Um it's you know watching it again like um t- to prepare for this it's just that Stallone is um is awkward doing like very broad comedy at this point in his career. And so it, Dolly Parton is appealing. Her songs are not bad in it. And um it looks fine. It's shot in scope. Like it's not top to bottom disaster, but it is kind of an awkward, uh unfunny comedy. And
0: uh, it, I've been curious just to see Stallone sing country music.
1: You know, I mean, that's gotta be it's, weird. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's awkward. Like, I mean, it's, and it's most, it's meant to be awkward, but you feel awkward for Sylvester Stallone, the actor. Like it's, you don't feel awkward for the character. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. I, it was a cr- critical and commercial flop and it's n- not hard to see why um, it's not a secret success, but you know, if, after that point, he does Turk 182. Did you ever see that with Timothy Hutton? No, I, again,
0: like, a lot of the, the extreme negativity towards everything pretty much from this point forward kind of steered me away. Like even, even something like it runs in the family. I, uh, I, I just, it was like sort of this weird anomaly. It was buried and kind of like lost and again, put out under a different title. And as much as I love a Christmas story and Gene Shepard and all that stuff, I didn't really actively seek it out you know, cause I just figured, Oh God, you know, something happened pretty much from rhinestone onward, but
1: yeah. Well, and I'm not going to go, um, film by film through the rest of it, but essentially what happens is it's, uh, it's a bunch of, uh, comedies, some of them broader than others. And then, um, te- made for television movies. Um, again, like a lot of family things, a lot of things that are very sentimental. Um, some, um, I mean he had like a kind of a fluke hit in 99 with Baby Geniuses which um I saw it uh this week for the first time and are you okay? You know the thing is with something like that it's I I might have liked it when I was 7 like and that's who it's aimed at so it's like on the one hand it's like I didn't like it but I'm also not who it's made for so i i just i i kind of just observed it I, I know that it's like you know almost like a punchline you know talking about bob clark's careers hitting the lows of something like baby geniuses um i don't know i mean i i show it to some children they might i mean there's a reason that was a hit i just i i'm not the audience for that and that has good cast too it has kathleen turner in it it has uh kim cattrall back again um you know uh, someone else oh um Christopher, Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah, like it has some good actors in it, um, but it's I don't know, it's not funny. It, it you know, I I I, I don't know, um, but and I haven't seen the sequel to it, um, so I don't know if Super Babies Baby no, Geniuses no, Two is no, actually no, 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 a, uh, you know, a corrective to anything in it. But yeah, it, it it's it's a it's a career that kind of winds down. Like I think the last thing he did was a film called Blonde and Blonder that he was like kind of in a battle to get his director credit for it at the time that he was tragically killed um, because of a- Yeah, that is
0: unreal what happened. That's so sad.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if he's the kind of person that would have seen the work reassessed as he grew older the way someone like John Carpenter, like pretty much every John Carpenter film has a cult following. Um, And granted, John Carpenter had a much more consistent career, but um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, certain certain titles are going to get reevaluated, like the horror films, like *Death Room* and *Black Christmas*. Uh, *Christmas Story* is going to always stay a beloved family uh, classic. But I don't know if something like Porky's will ever be respectable. It, it just feels like it's not built for that. But it is interesting, you know, in terms of film history. Like it had this cultural impact. It yeah. had this. Okay. Um, yeah this impact on 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 film that you know i thought when you suggested that we do a bob clark uh talk you know because of death dream i thought well let's let's at least bring that one up too because uh, it gets it gets overshadowed by its uh it's yeah. worth, it's definitely worth seeing and it's it's worth talking about
0: especially how the fact that it changed so much and so many films tried to emulate that really you know it's like how many of those, how, like, I, I don't know. I should probably just pick up Mike's book and look at all the, you know, the various sex comedies that came out in wake of that film. And, you know, some of them I'm sure were more successful than others. And some of them are really eye rolling for sure, especially the way they portray women. But Porky's definitely surprised me uh, in that. Yeah. It's, it's not all about like guys ogling women and, you know, showing off boobs left and right and stuff, you know? Cause I, that's, that's my interpretation of a sex comedy really. <laughs> and then this one, it's like, Oh, you know what? There's, there's, uh, you know, subtlety, there's things going on. There's a little bit more under the surface and there's certainly a more
1: humiliation of the guys that is fun to experience. I'd yeah. Say. In terms of the sexual politics of it, if you put it aside, um, put it alongside something like revenge of the nerds, um, por- yeah, that one didn't Porky's Porkies Porkies will Porkies will come across as a lot more uh, you know, rational and 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 politically correct, you know, compared to some of its uh peers in that in that field. I mean, I don't know. I I it's 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 never going to be a reputable subgenre and and most of those films are not great movies. Um, but you know, they have their they have their place in history. <laughs> And I will briefly
0: bring up, even though Bob Clark had nothing to do with it, apparently there is, and you can listen to more, uh, you know, certainly if you want to check out Christmas movies, actually on the now playing network, uh, Colin Souter and Carrie Finnegan do dissect Christmas story and black Christmas further, but, uh, they also brought up, um, the fact that there is a Christmas story two direct to DVD sequel, uh, that apparently is unwatchable, and it has uh, Daniel Stern, who went on to do the voice of uh, of older Kevin Arnold in Wonder <laughs> Years, of course. Yeah. Uh, but this is, yeah, I, 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 I'm never gonna watch it. <laughs> as much as I love Christmas Story, like. Don't ruin it. And I think that's exactly what this film
1: did. You know, it's one, uh, uh, one other pop cultural thing that, uh, I, I forgot to mention is that the, um, in the, in the late seventies, he also produced a film called Moonrunners that, uh, guy Waldron, uh, the writer producer, uh, did. And that, um, was the template for the Dukes of hazard television show.
0: Yes. Yes. I heard about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: Interesting. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was a big part of my childhood, the, uh, on, on, you know, sure. the Dukes of Hazard. So Bob Clark was not the creator on that. I think he wrote maybe a script and then like a, a TV movie, uh, tie in. But, um, I think when they did that, uh, big budget remake a few years back, I mean, he was one of the people that, uh, saw a big payday when they sued the studio for like some kind of credit that they didn't initially get. So yeah. I don't know. Well, well, Bill, we've reached the end, where,
0: where we reveal our top three picks from the director. So, if you're ready, you can reveal t- to
1: the world your love of the Karate Dog. Right, I here could, and now. but um, I'll just go with three tribute, two Death Dream, one Black Christmas.
0: Oh, okay.
1: I'll go
0: with three A Christmas Story, two Black Christmas, and one Death Dream so that's pretty close <laughs> but yeah one and two is you're you're right one and two
1: almost that's like high for me the
0: moment i'm watching yeah yeah the moment i'm watching them they're my favorite
1: <laughs> yeah I, I i i don't really rank one that like higher than the other but for the sake of giving you a list those are the that i'll go with that one
0: yeah and i'll definitely catch up with tribute thank you um so yeah, what's going on with you in the world of supporting characters? Where can people find you
1: all that good stuff? Um, so yeah, I, my show is uh, supporting characters that you can get. Um, you can find it at uh, www.nowplayingnetwork.net and you can find it on iTunes and uh, Spotify and all those places. Um, the next episode will be with Gary twos who uh, has the DVD beaver uh, review website and, um, but uh, yeah, all my back episodes, um, you can find that location. And then the um, home video stuff I'm working on, if I want to plug anything, I think the only thing I can say is that Puzzle of a Downfall Child, um, the Jerry Schatzberg movie, uh, is coming out through Kino Lorber, I think in November. And I, I'm on the commentary for that with Daniel Kramer, the filmmaker, and um, some other stuff coming up that isn't announced yet. But so that's what I'm working on. Terrific.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, our next episode, of course, is going to be all horror related this time. Uh, we got Lucio Fulci featuring Gabe Powers and Patrick Rupole, uh, a director that I've only seen two films of that everybody seems to love as far as I know, and I'm excited to catch up with more. Actually, I've seen three movies now. Now that I've seen the uh, the the lizard in a woman's skin, which I love. So there's, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot to look forward to in that conversation. I, I don't know how we'll cover it all. Uh, I think we're going to focus on probably the beyond and lizard in a woman's skin, but I, I think it's going to be one of those conversations similar to us where we try to tackle as much as possible. Um, and they're both very knowledgeable about Fulci, so I'm not too worried, but I'm, I'm going to see as much as I can between now and then. So please, uh, just go to directorsclubpodcast.com as well as the network.net. and you can follow me on Letterboxd over at Now Playing Jim and Twitter at Now Playing Jim. Once again, thank you so much, Bill, for being on the show. It was always It's always a pleasure and a blast to have you on. Uh, we'll do it again very thank soon, I'm for sure. Have me back. This was fun. Great. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you soon in about a month for the Lucio Fulci episode. Goodbye.